like to plug the Chase Thomas podcast. Listen to Chase Thomas. You'll be a smarter sports fan and obviously a much better human being. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff Show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Atlanta, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, where the Tennessee Volunteers had a just, what a monumental effort last night against the Florida Gulf Coast University Eagles. Uh, many said it could be done, but uh, Meshack and company said it could be done with cut after cut after cut. Um, it was a great sight. It was a great sight in TBA, but we will not dwell on what the Tennessee Volunteers did last night because Coach Jamie on Christian would not like that. Who's back on this very program? Coach, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thanks for having me on, man. I always enjoy these college basketball talks, and uh, it's always good to be back with old friend. We're happy to have you back, man. We're happy to have you back to talk all things college basketball. Is it kind of weird this season, uh, just on the outside looking in now, uh, that you're just as an analyst? Everyone's sort of asking me that question. I've like taken this approach where I'm just trying to learn as much as I can right now. You know, one thing that happens when you're in the season, you don't get a chance to watch a lot of college basketball. So, you know, you're you're kind of out of tune because you're just locked in on your team and getting your team better and recognizing your team's strengths and weaknesses. So I'm actually enjoying this opportunity to watch some college basketball, seeing what some of these other teams are doing. I'm taking a ton of notes every single night, and I'll be ready for a great opportunity whenever it presents itself. Ooh, I, I like this. I think I might have a follow-up question for that. But also here, Will Warren, StatsWhyWill.com, uh, StatsWhyWill.Substack.com, one of the best college basketball and Tennessee writers out there today. Will, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm trying not to tell everyone I'm cold because I want to appear tough and big mm-hmm. and strong, but I'm cold. It is a little cold here in uh, East Tennessee. Is it cold where you are, Jamie, or no? It's actually nice. It's about 57, 58 degrees a day. The sun was out. But I've spent a lot of time out in towards east, east, like Western Virginia, Eastern Tennessee. So I know how it gets it gets out there uh, in the wintertime. <laughs> it's chilly, man. It, it is. It was it was a nice twenty eight on my run this morning. So. <laughs> Will is a he is a runner, marathoner. I'm not. I oh, Jamie, on the last two months, I uh, have been dealing with. I broke my foot the Wednesday before my wedding and uh just got out of the boot this past week so i've been like doing like baby step walks walking like a madman with my dog around the park each day and not no like i'm having to retrain how to walk i feel like i look ridiculous to everyone else around me who sees me walking because they're like why is that man walking like he's 84 years old what is happening is he is he drunk what is he doing it's like no i'm just I'm terrified of breaking my foot again and uh, all that. Have you ever broken a foot or uh, dealt with anything like that? I, I have not. I mean, look, knock on wood, I've not had any lower leg injuries. 
that have new required surgery, you know, pull hamstrings, mm. pull calves. Those things happen when you're playing basketball. But, you know, I would always say to my players when they'd have an injury like that, like a broken foot or, you know, something that, that they're out for a substantial amount of time, it's actually a good opportunity for you to like retrain yourself on how mm. to move and walk properly. Mm. You're going to go to all this kind of like conditioning and rehab and take it seriously because they're going to teach you how to walk the right way which is going to prevent you from having an injury on the other side at some point. So I think it's actually a really positive opportunity. So many of our players would come back and be better on the other side of the injury because of some of these little things they had to relearn. So it's a great opportunity mm -hmm. for you. Don't worry about what other people are saying or what other people are thinking. That's always a, that's always a pathway for failure. Don't worry mm -hmm. about that. Just worry about yourself getting better and getting healthy and, and you'll be back before you know it. Something tells me they're not going to treat me the same as a GW uh, basketball player. It might be a little bit different. I think it's, I actually think the beginning steps of rehab are all pretty similar. Now, obviously mm -hmm. they're working really hard to get our players back in a certain amount of time. And, and so mm -hmm. maybe the intensity of it might be different, but I think most, for the most part of it is a, a human body is a human body. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so it's only going to stretch so far or move in so many different directions. So I think it's really important that, you know, our rehab people always did a really good job of really starting from the foundation Hmm. Um, because again, you're relearning how to walk. It didn't matter if you're seven foot tall, 300 pounds, or if you're five foot nine, 150 pounds, you still got the same process of learning how to do it again. No, hundred percent. Like my whole left side, it's just like, it's, it's so weird. I never would have guessed that it would feel this strange and I have to retrain my body to do that. But it, it really is. Um, and there's a mental aspect to it. They told me I'm not allowed to run bare minimum until January. So, uh, we'll, we'll see. PT is going to be a, is a fun back and forth where, uh, they didn't like my joke where I was like, I want to be treated no different than Michael Jordan, who had the same uh, avulsion fracture in his left foot in 1985. Uh, many are saying I'm the Michael Jordan of podcasting. I want to be treated at, in that same vein. Michael got 15 minutes a night when he came back after a couple of months. And that's what I want to be at. That's that's where I want to be. Don't Kevin McHale me and put me in a spot where I'm limping around for the rest of my life. No, I want the Michael Jordan treatment. That's what I want. <laughs> But that's that's where we're at. Um, all kinds of great college basketball this week. Um, this is something uh, that I thought was fascinating uh, that we were talking about uh, on the college football show is that like, I think college basketball, I wonder with you being on the inside, uh, Coach Christian, is just that like, I think they miss an opportunity early in the season, like with these middle of the week games, like what we saw this week was great. I don't know why they didn't open the season with Michigan State, with Duke, with Kansas, with Kentucky. Because these two games um, two days ago were unbelievable. They were both awesome in very, very different ways. But that's what you need to do when you're opening in the middle or really the heart of the college football season is like big matchups. Like let's do George Washington versus George Mason right out of the gate. Let's do these big things during the week that you don't really have the kind of you're not worried about Maction. You're not worried about some of this other uh, competitors or anything like that. You have this opportunity to really um, get people excited, get people energized about the product being back and uh, reintroduce a lot of these players and coaches and all that stuff. I don't know why they don't do that. Are you surprised they don't do more big matchups right out of the gate? Well, I think the first opportunity is, you know, the home games for the Power Five teams in that first matchup are such huge money makers. Mm. Um, you know, you're looking at bringing an excitement to your college campus. And if you're in the Big East, none of those schools have major football. They may have some one double A football things going on in the Big East. But, you know, if you're the Big East, you're, you want to get a home game as soon as possible. You basically mm. had no revenue for for how many months. So that first home game is a great opportunity just to get your fan base back on fire and excited about what's going on. In college basketball, you have this opportunity to reintroduce your team, new players, guys who've graduated. You get this 
you know, you got a whole lot of things going on right there. So I always kind of recognize the first game as an opportunity to sort of just get everybody settled. You've got a lot of players who haven't played in that home environment before. A lot of guys who are going to be a little bit nervous. So for a power five to play a team that's a little bit lower, to have an opportunity to work out the kinks and get a victory at home, I think makes a lot of sense. But I agree with you. I love these sort of matchups. You know, I had a chance a few weekends ago to go to Florida, Georgia, I'm in Jacksonville and they're fighting hard in college football right now to get this game back on college campuses. And I'm like, this is one of the best events in all of college sports being in a neutral, neutral place. Mm -hmm. I'm playing in a bigger, uh, playing in a bigger stadium, all those things. So I love to see the the Kentucky, Michigan state type of matchups early in the year. Um, And, you know, if you remember back probably 15 years ago, we had so many of these sort of tournaments. Now the, now the MTEs have sort of taken over, those sort, of, those sort of opportunities for good or for bad, but you can't deny that the the environment in the game the other day was electric because of the two teams having a chance to play in a neutral place against really and really really high competition. What do you think, Will? Uh, well, this year I do think is unique because you know typically we don't start the season on a Monday, and this year you know election day fell where the Champions Classic normally would have been, so you got to mm. push it back a week. I am happy that the powers that be are, you know, emphasizing election day in a way they didn't used to. Uh, That being said, it was a real bummer to go into last week. And, you know, on paper, those first four days, the best game was uh, Memphis Vanderbilt, which was not like a bad game. But I mean, nobody is stopping what they're doing to watch Memphis and Vandy play basketball. That's just like it's just an okay game. And that's not to say we didn't get some pretty cool stuff. I mean, in this first week, you know, we've seen TCU drop a shocker to uh, Northwestern State. We've seen the SWAC teams uh, sweep the Pac-12 teams that came to visit them. <laughs> I mean, we've seen we've seen a lot of cool stuff. But, you know, aside from the aircraft carrier game, which is more of like, uh, I do honestly wish they had, it, it is like a cool thing to look at, but I wish they had played that indoors where wind wouldn't affect the shooting because it would have just been a higher quality game. And what so, do you think you, about those, Jamie? On like, do you is is it a good idea? Like, it's a good. <laughs> this is tough. Um, how to frame this? Because come from a very strong military family and all that, and I'm sure it's cool for a lot of those guys on the ships to see it up close and personal. But like, I mean, that's got to be weird as a player being on the aircraft and the shots and just like even in warmups, you're like kind of figuring it out as you go through. Is it just is it significantly? more difficult to play in those kind of games? I would feel like it's significantly different. The backdrops mm. to the shooting, the yeah. air, um, you know, the, I mean, you know, you think all the things that affect the basketball, the coolness of the air from the beginning of the game to the end of the game, the breeze coming off of there. There's all these different things that when you play outdoors, yeah, yeah you kind of learn how to factor <laughs> in. But I will say, I've been a person who's played so much indoors and now I'm playing a ton outdoors. Mm. It does take you a little bit of time to get adjusted to that. You know, the good thing is when you're looking at Michigan State and Gonzaga, you're looking at two teams that are rarely going to be on the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, it's a, it's a great game for college basketball. It's a great game to support our troops and show how much we love and care about them. Um, and it's not going to really hurt them at the end of the year. You know, we're not going to look back and say, well, Michigan State lost to Gonzaga. It, it, it won't factor in against them. Now, if it was a team that might be on the bubble, mm-hmm. if you're looking at a team that's in one of those power fives, or one of these mid-majors, it could really factor in. But I think they've done a great job of using some of the very best teams where it's really not going to be a factor, I believe, at the end of the year. I like it. Um, well, let's get our Tennessee stuff out uh, out there because I know people are going to be curious to get uh, your take on this. And Jamie, you and I were texting about uh, Coach Barnes and 
what the what Tennessee likes to do. And one of the things that I've looked at, and we saw this last night, is Tennessee is significantly deeper than they were a year ago. And there's a blessing and a curse to that where, look, Barnes, he he had to figure some stuff out last year, but then it was like, all right, here's my seven, and that's my seven, and we're going to live and die by this group um, until it ends. This year, I don't think there's a path to a seven, barring injuries. Injuries obviously can change stuff, but I... I don't know, like Meshack, who was so good last night, um, really, really enjoy uh, what his development's looking like. Uh, Phillips just, he is, it, we'll see if he continues to get more and more aggressive, but I mean, him streaking down the lane, he's he's great. Um, he's great off the ball. He's able to defend one through five. He's going to be a really good player. Um, it's just how much offensive responsibility is he going to have um, with so many guys who can create for themselves and uh, carry a lot of that load with Tyree Key now in the fold with Zakai Ziegler off the bench with Santi Vescovi, who three steals early um, was all over the place. He's like one of those guys too, that I think is so interesting because the ball finds him on rebounds where he gets these rebounding sets. And if you go back and rewind and you just see where he said, it just falls to him. It, he gets, he's a triple double machine, but you, there are some guys, I swear the ball just finds them. And San Diego Vescovi is one of those guys. But then you look at it and you're like, Olivia Kumas is just awesome. You didn't have him down the stretch last year. He's gotten a lot bigger and stronger. Um, the shooting should be a lot better uh, with this group. Just Jordan James, the top of the key is just money. Like whenever you lose him at the top, I don't know what you're doing, but it, it's too late when you see him open at the top of the key. But when you look at the way this group looks um, with the Colorado loss, with what they've done to this point, do you see what Izzo sees? Like they could be a Final Four team. Do you think this is better than a season ago, the team that won the SEC championship game? Or do you think um, there's still a lot more you want to see before you, you go that far? Well, I think the roster, you know, the rotation thing is always interesting. You know, Barnes always been a seven or eight play uh, rotation guy. I do think it'll probably settle into being more closer to that. You know, as mm-hmm. a person who used to play 10 guys all the time, it gets really challenging to to play the ninth and 10th guy, especially when the moments really rise and for guys to be able to settle into a rhythm. You know, I was really curious watching this Tennessee team, you know, watching their departures last year, and just the progression that they've been able to make. You know, co- obviously Coach Barnes is one of the best coaches in the country year in and year out. I would say in a lot of ways really underrated. You know, he's been able to win at three really difficult places and and just done an amazing job. And so I kind of start there is that, you know, you got to con- consider the source. The source of this is someone who really knows what they're doing, really has de- done a great job of developing. It's not like a first-year head coach where there's a lot of question marks. You know, we know Barnes is going to get the right guys on the floor with the right kind of opportunities, and they're going to be able to settle in. And you know that his teams are always going to lead with toughness. And, and that's one of those components that when you're leading with toughness, I don't know how that works out in the stats world, but for some reason, those teams are really tough. They always find a way to be there at the end. And when you've got a, a Hall of Fame head coach leading that charge, you're going to have an opportunity to be really good. And you just got to recognize that every day in practice, the things that we're seeing that might be weaknesses, he's spending a lot of time working on and getting, getting them better. It's a group that I think has an opportunity to really mature. I'm never going to go against what Tom Izzo says because mm-hmm. he's been the Final Four a lot more times than I have. Uh, the first time he went was more times than I went. So, you know, I understand. <laughs> still time, that. Jamie. He's a lot um, older than you. There's still time. And, you know, yeah. I'm going to get there. But in this moment, I haven't gotten there yet. And I can see what Tom Izzo is saying. It's a really talented group of guys who have a chance to mature. And a lot of Final Four teams are not teams that you pick out at the beginning of the year and say, this is going to definitely be there. It's a team that has the ability to mature through the course. That's Tennessee Vols. Well, you can also tell, right, when Tyreek Key is not an offensive factor with this group, where Tyreek was just, uh, I think he, he was scoreless in the first half, wasn't he? I don't think he had a bucket in the first half. If I, I think recall. he got, he got like, uh, was it free throws? Two-pointer. Like okay, a, he got one yeah, two-pointer. He had two. 
Yeah, yeah that's, he was that's quiet. And Zakai had a really good three at one point where he was wide open. And you could tell that was big for him. And uh, he did like a little just like a fist pound for himself uh, after hitting that one, which was great. But I don't know. The offense was clunky at times. But I think the biggest thing from this game is I hope this is not how Tennessee is officiated for the whole season, because the fouls in this one were. Uh, bogging this game down uh, significantly. I think there were what six. I mean, FGS FGCU was in the bonus what three minutes into the second half, and we were just like, "What yeah. are we doing? What's happening here? You don't want to. You don't want to have a game called this way." Do you? Do you, do you think that there was a lot of fouls and Tennessee was just a little over aggressive, or do you think they weren't called that well? And how concerned are you about the the guard offensive explosion? Uh. I'm not really concerned about too much yet. I, I, with this early season stuff, it's kind of just like, you know, get back to me in a few weeks. Tennessee's mm. still shaking things out. Like the rotation doesn't worry me. Barnes is going to find his eight come February. Um, but I will say the way the game was officiated, because I know like Tennessee picked up a bunch of fouls in the second half, but I think Florida Gulf Coast picked up the first eight fouls of the game, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know, Look, I understand that, you know, they're probably going to be slanted more towards whoever is home court, but come on, cut these guys a break. (laughs) (laughs) I I did think, so Gulf Coast plays pretty aggressively, and to Tennessee's credit, Tennessee plays very aggressively defensively as well, and as a means of forcing turnovers. And to the, the credit of the toughness aspect, I think that's why, you know, Tennessee, you know, year in, year out, forces a lot of turnovers, and it seems like late in games always knows how to get to the free throw line. They're always willing to, you know, do the work in the post and battle for boards. But yeah, I, I think the guard play is going to settle itself out. Ziggler was, he, he hasn't really shown much, but this is the same guy who was such an X factor for Tennessee last year. I think he is going to be fine. Key is probably, you know, not to make a pun of it, but the key to Tennessee's <laughs> fortunes this year. It is really rare that you get a fifth year senior who, you know, scored, what is it, 19, 20 points per game at his previous school? Mm-hmm. Yep. extremely rare that you get that opportunity to add such a guy to your roster. And I think as the season wears on, as you get close to March, that's going to be the guy that tells you where Tennessee goes. Uh, Jamion, what do you feel? What do you like about the flop technical or what do you not like as a coach? <laughs> and for, like, would you have lost your mind at the first one? Like this is, I, I don't know. I, this one is rough. I, what do you think of it? You know, I think it's, I think it's really tough mm. because and actually I was on the phone ahead of officials the day before I got fired about this. Actually, Really? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Cause not about the flop technical. Um, but the way it's officiated is officiated. Like all shots are the same sort of shots. Mm. Right. So if I can give you a little example, a catch and shoot perimeter shot ball coming from the outside, from the inside to the outside, my feet are planted and set mm. catch and shoot. I have the ability to go straight up. And straight down, maybe a little bit forward because some people do that, right? That's an easy one to see on a flop or kicking out your legs, right? Mm. That should be one kind of shot. The difference of another kind of shot, though, is when I'm moving away from the basket and kind of shooting like Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, where I'm turning towards the basket. Mm. Because now my momentum and my hips have to get back going towards it. So Mm. my landing zone is different. Yeah, It's not the same on a catch and shoot coming from the perimeter. So my my wasn't really my argument. It was something I wanted to bring up in the coaches' meeting with with our officials. Was you've got to call those two two two. You've got to call those things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, again, on a catch and shoot, when my feet are planted, 
if I'm kicking my feet out, if I'm flopping, those should be really easy calls to make because mm -hmm. all the action's happening in the same place. It's more difficult when I'm coming away from the basket and turning towards it because now I've got to, you know, sometimes you got to kick your feet in a way to get the momentum going back towards the basket. Those can be really hard to call. I don't think they've made that adjustment. I saw a couple of these flop technicals already and guys are going straight up. And the difference in the NBA versus college is in the NBA, you're not allowed to come up underneath the guy's landing zone. Mm -hmm. And some of these flop tentacles the other night, the guy was going into their landing zone as a defender. Right. And that's not a call yet. So I just think we need to get some clarity on what that looks like. I don't like the call on the flop technical because I think I don't like the initial call because I feel like it can be easily called and it can be easily missed because of the criteria I just gave you there. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a point that you can't afford to give away. Um, but Either way, I think they've got to get some great clarity on that because those are two different scenarios that need to be called differently and need to be respected differently. Will, what do you think? Uh, well, Coach here has honestly thought about this much more than I have because it actually mattered his bottom line. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really don't like this technical. Um, I would have, if I were you know, officiating czar, which luckily is not a job I'll ever hold because that sounds really rough, um, <laughs> basketball could do really well to have a soccer type system where you keep the flop warning and you don't immediately proceed to the flop technical unless it's either, you know, extremely obvious in some cases where it's just like, come on, man, mm -hmm. or it's your second offense. You know, I think flopping's a problem, but I just, I don't trust a lot of college officials to get it right on the first shot. And especially this early in the season when they're all kind of learning their way through this new role, they've been asked to emphasize. Um, my fear is that we're going to have a game of real importance later in the year, and it's decided by one of these calls. And mm. if that happens, the discourse emerging from that is going to be real toxic, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with you, and I think that's why I kind of give you all that criteria to outline it. To prepare it so we can get the kinks all, out now. Right, if you're yeah. not looking yeah. at all that different criteria, you, I mean, you're 100% correct. A Sweet 16 or, or a Final Four game is going to be decided on a technical free throw of a guy, maybe trying to get fouled, maybe just trying to get his hips around. And if they're not looking at it that technically, then it's going to be an issue and it's going to win someone a game and lose someone else a game. I mean, that's what happened in the Duke Kansas game. Like that was a landing zone issue. Like that was not a flop technical. His foot's right there. I don't know what you want him to do. And he could have gotten injured. Like that's how guys get injured in that spot. So are you still giving him the flop technical if he rolls his ankle from that, from that spot? It's uh, yeah, that's gotta be, that's gotta be worked out as someone who played, uh, AAU I, and being uh, undersized, one of the, I, I have a I have a fond memories of parents and coaches, opposing coaches, yelling at me for flopping, and it was one of those <laughs> where it was it wasn't a flop. When you're smaller, like flopping is just such a hard thing to figure out in basketball because if I'm getting decked by uh, the Atlanta Stars who. Uh, where Dwight Howard and Josh Smith of the world have played and they're just burying me and I'm just getting shoulder checked uh, on my way to a fast break free throw. It's going to look significantly worse than uh, someone a little bit bigger than me. So it's just, there's so many judgment calls um, with flops that I don't know. I don't trust the officials because I think it's just too hard and you don't want games decided that way because it's just so subjective. Um, speaking of those two big games though, uh, on Tuesday night, Duke, Kansas, uh, Kansas wins out late uh, from a late surge. Duke jumped out early in the second half, and it was like, oh, is Duke just going to run away with this with Filipowski uh, just really dominating inside, and just the the length that Duke has is going to be a problem for a lot of a lot of schools uh, for the rest of the way. And 
Kansas is not big. They just play big. And that's what's cool about watching Kansas with Adams and company is that they're undersized. Their bigs are undersized, but they're strong and they, they battle and it's, it's really fun. Um, I think uh, Jalen Wilson has made the leap. He is so smooth. His shot looks great. Um, He can score from anywhere on the floor. Um, He was a lot of fun. Uh, Dick is going to be a a really good, uh, hateable Kansas player. You can just see that now where he's going to... It's amazing he's not a Duke player. (laughs) It's amazing he's not a Duke player because he is going to uh, annoy a lot of folks the next couple of years or maybe just the one year. I don't know how long he's there. I love... uh, There was a comp on Twitter. Someone compared him to Rudy Fernandez. And it's this is why you're on Twitter because I'm like, oh, I had not seen that and I had not thought about Portland legend Rudy Fernandez in like 10 years. And then you go and look at it and you're like, there really is a lot of similarities. Um, But... Michigan State also winning um, in a big shocker over the Kentucky Wildcats where Will and I were just were so sad for what happened at Kentucky there uh, in their opener. Just a preview of March. Just a preview (laughs) of March. Um, Will, what did you make of uh, the two big games? Uh, What uh, what was your strongest takes? Uh, I kind of came out of Duke, Kansas, feeling better about both, honestly. Hmm. Uh, I thought Duke played well. Uh, the actual jump shooting on both sides is pretty nasty, but I think you can attribute some of that to like, you've never played in this arena before weird environment. And I don't, I didn't see, I didn't notice what basketball they were using, but like the basketball teams have to use in games does make a huge difference depending on the arena and the rims. Um, but I came away most impressed with the two freshmen, freshmen for Duke, uh, Filipowski and lively, mm. both really hard to stop the room in different ways. Filipowski, uh, I owe him an apology. I thought he was the worst of the three freshmen they brought in, and mm. he is really, really good. Uh, he is understandably going to be like a potential lottery pick. Uh, Lively is Duke's best defender out there. I'm really excited to see what they look like when they add Whitehead uh, back from injury because I think they're going to be – I mean, they're already wrecking everybody on the boards, mm. and if you can't keep them off the boards, you're not going to have a chance of beating them unless you shoot the lights out. Um, and then, you know, Kansas, Jalen Wilson's the MVP. That was probably his best game as a college player. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like both these teams a lot. Grady Dick is going to be a really important piece for them, obviously, uh, both shooting. And then as he slowly starts to figure out the defensive side of it down the road, um, I think, you know, that these are two really, really good teams. I'm excited to see them both develop. Also, don't lose McCullers in the corner. Like, that's just it. Like, that mm-hmm. should never happen. That should be on every scouting report is McCullers in the corner. Like, he had two open corner threes that he drilled both. And, I mean, obviously, the two worst shots you can give up are corner threes and at the rim. But that man finds a way to be open in the corner multiple times a game. And it's just going to be brutal for these teams. And these coaching staffs are like, we're, they're just preaching. Do not lose this man in the corner. Whatever you do, this is where he wants to be. He And he's just going to get a couple of them. Uh, what were your takeaways, Jamie? Well, you know, I, my perspective is so different. I had a chance to recruit or talk to or watch a lot of the Duke guys when they were mm. much younger. So I've had a chance to watch them sort of make this progression as basketball players. It's been fun to watch. I um, also had a chance to go down and watch a Duke practice. And so I've been around a little bit more. Uh, Dewan Harris for Kansas. I was at CP3 camp working with him. So I've had a chance to be a little more interactive with them. And you know, I wasn't surprised by the result. Uh, I like Kansas maturity. Um, they're just, you know, Dewan Harris just settles everybody down. Mm-hmm. And he's only going to keep getting better at the way that he can create. He's just a person that, that again, is really stable, but just knows how to create, knows how to make the big play. 
think about the block and transition that mm. allowed for a second block, which became one of the plays of the night for Kansas. Those kind of plays he's really capable of making. And then with the way their wings have been able to play and how they've been able to produce, he's got a lot of guys he can pass the ball to. I think with Kansas, I'd be concerned about their bigs. Hmm. Um, yes. You know, younger bigs at this point. Now, Bill Self, again, one of the best ever. His bigs always produce and always play well. Um, but this is going to be a little bit different year because those bigs have got to come along. Usually with the Bill Self coach team, you have an older big who's been a little bit under the radar who kind of produces. And then these kind of younger raw guys who kind of start to step into it. But he seems like this year he's got two pretty raw guys. Mm-hmm. They'll figure it out and they'll know how to compete and do their part. And obviously they're amazing. They're at Kansas. They're playing well. But it's going to be interesting that dynamic of how they mature and play together. Duke, I was I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I mean, they're just they're, they're really really young. You know, Piekowski is an mm-hmm. unbelievable scorer. It's going to really come down to how he defends. I believe. Um, loves the offensive end, can do so many things, but can he defend enough? You know, I looked, I turned the page, I look at Grady Dick the same way. I actually tweeted about this. You know, his biggest area improvement is going to need to be defensive. You go back and watch the film of the second half, he was getting switched off on whoever, and they were attacking him and scoring just about every time. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have to be a much better defender. You know, now he turned it on. He had seven straight points at the, at, near the end of the game, and everyone's going to remember that. But the reason they lost the lead is because he he didn't compete at the level that was necessary defensively. But that is a normal normal opportunity for freshmen. That's what happened with freshmen, and that's why I would be concerned with Duke. You know, you can play a game like this against Kansas where everybody is against you, and you're going to go and attack it. But they've got some good mid-major games coming up that they're going to have to be able to play really good team defense. And I am concerned about their youth. Um, their youth is going to have to be able to defend in different situations and with smaller, quicker guys. That size plays plays an advantage for them with Kansas. But when they play as mid-major games, it can easily work against you because guys can get in the, get in the lane and play a little bit. Um, so, again, pleasantly surprised with Duke. I like their talent. I, I mean, I love their talent, their ability to score the ball. But can they get it done on the defensive end? That's where it's really going to come down to. They're deep, though, and they're going to figure it out. I think Duke, there's a chance. I mean, do you see – with what you saw in camp and what you've seen thus far, is there a path to them being the best team in the country this year? I think it's really hard to be a freshman group and the best team in the country. Mm. Um, I don't know if we're going to see that for a while uh, because so many of the best teams now are older. I mean, mm-hmm. Kansas takes McCullough from Texas Tech and plays them on the wing. So some of this transfer movement is going to affect the younger teams. You know, they're just going to be going against fourth and fifth year guys or, or some, some places six year guys that you just haven't seen before. Um, I think they have enough talent. Like if that group came back for another year, um, they'd be preseason number one next year, the favorite for next year and have an opportunity to win it. I do think it's going to be tough. The other thing that happens that you got to recognize with younger players is as the year, as the year goes on, they're going to get more, they're going to be more distractions that they haven't had to deal with before. You know, the better they play, the more distractions are going to present themselves. And usually it takes a veteran type squad to know how to get away from those distractions. And when you're talking about the distractions, you're not just talking about the players. You've got mm-hmm. first-year head coach working through that as well. You've got a lot of new factors there that I think will make it tough. Again, they're really talented, but I think it's going to make it tough for them to be a national championship team this season. But I think they can be in the mix and really give people a hard time. I'm curious, what did, what was different about what they were running? Have you noticed anything like John Shire already kind of putting his yeah. stamp on something he might do differently uh, in game than Coach K? 
Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, the thing you got to thing you recognize with Shire is that you know he's Duke born and raised. Everything he's done, everything he's done in college basketball has been with Duke. So there are going to be obviously some variations. I mean, you saw more people touching the ball on the perimeter, right? You saw more mm. people have an opportunity. Pajkowski driving the ball to the front of the rim and posting up. You saw a lot more sets called out of the timeouts to get the ball to the right person, the right people, in the right position. Um, you know, last few years Duke's been really free flowing with how they've been able to move it. You saw a little bit more of you know let's get proctor the ball here, a little bit, a little more ISO game. Um, being able to get guys to, to different spots on the floor. So I did recognize that being unique. And again, I think that's a really dangerous game as well. Like you've got to get that right. And you're relying on your head coach to get those calls right every time for those guys to have the space to score. Again, Coach K kind of opened it up, let those guys play a little bit more. It's going to be great to watch. I think he's definitely putting a stamp on it. I'll tell you this, the kids vibe with him. You know, in, in practice, they're with him. They're all on the same page. He's got a great demeanor with the players. I actually, put, I actually tweeted last night like, I think John Shire is going to do a really good job. I don't need ESPN selling me on it every day. Okay, <laughs> like just let him run his race, let him coach his team, let us fall in love with him as as we did with Coach K years ago. If that ever happens, um, or if the Duke hate continues, let that continue to be there. But let's not sell us on it. Let's let us watch the product and see how it goes, and, and root as fans or root as as root as those who are going against it. Mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, Will bigger panic meter or higher panic meter for you to this point, Villanova or Oregon? Uh, I mean, like if I was just going objectively here, I think Villanova's underachieved more because I, mm. I was not high on Oregon heading into the year. I didn't really understand why they were a top 25 team, but, uh, the Villanova loss to Temple wasn't really troublesome until I saw the other Temple games where they haven't really been, you know, very special. And then, uh, they just kind of, I wouldn't say like rolled the ball out and let it, you know, fly against Delaware state, but they just didn't seem very interested in playing basketball. And that was honestly very alarming because that was not something that happened under Jay Wright ever. Uh, but at the same time, it's three, three games in, I would like to give Neptune time to sort of figure things out, you know, put his own stamp on things while retaining what Villanova's done. But uh, their biggest problem, I don't know if it's going to be fixable is rebounding. Um, they're pretty competent at it under Wright. This could be a roster issue, but like Eric Dixon's rebounding rate has gone way down uh, hmm. despite being their center. Uh, they got demolished on the boards, I believe, by Temple, uh, which is not something I thought I would see. So that that's going to be something that we're going to have to see a fix for. But Oregon's problem is more they just the guard play has been horrendous. They were awful against UC Irvine. They haven't really stood out in a positive way yet. And Folly Dante looks good. Uh, he's kind of starting to live up to that five-star promise, but, uh, and they can figure it out by March. It's not like Altman doesn't have a track record of doing exactly that, but, um, I, only Richardson really has a track record as a plus shooter on the roster. Everybody else is sort of either a question mark or a no. So I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious to see what he does, but both do have huge games this weekend that could sort of, uh, pause the panic talk if things go well. So Villanova plays at Michigan state. Uh, tomorrow, Friday, Oregon hosts Houston on Sunday. Wow. Problem is that both of those could be blowouts <laughs> if things go poorly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know. I'm I'm really curious to see how both respond. What are you thinking, uh, Coach? Well, I'm going to give you a secret. Uh-uh. No one retires when you think you have a great team coming back. Warren <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, wouldn't retired if he thought Carolina was going to make it to the national championship game. Mm-hmm. 
no one retires if you have a great team coming back. Right? Mm-hmm. So first and foremost, just understand that. I Kyle like Nelson, it. We had a chance to coach against him a year ago. I think our team finished ahead of his team, his Fordham team. He mm-hmm. did an amazing job. Um, I'm a big fan of Kyle Neptune, but it is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hit the panic meter, but I think there's going to be growing pains that exist. You've got mm-hmm. Jay Wright, a monumental figure who's been running, who ran, who ran a program for so long and did a great job. The way his demeanor is with the kids is going to be different than Kyle Neptune's is. It's going to take everybody a little bit of time to sort of learn that. You know, when you look at Villanova, they sort of had like the best of both worlds. They're able to bring in really talented recruits, but also keep their underclassmen who redshirted and came back. And so it's going to be different because who knows if Kyle Neptune is going to be able to be able to have those kind of conversations to keep the redshirted guys there to play another year. Mm-hmm. Eric Nixon, the guy you mentioned there, and they've got Breezy, one of the young, one of the young guards there, who's Hollywood. So those are some dynamics that he'll work through, and he'll do a great job of, and he'll coach the team really well. And he's the perfect guy to be there. But there're going to be some growing pains there. You know, when we talk about Oregon, I'm more concerned. I hit the panic meter on the Pac-12. <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly, you know, I mean, so can Oregon find a way to to finish top three in Pac-12? Probably. Yeah. The way the Pac-12 yeah. has performed. So a lot of this is right now in the moment, it feels like we should hit the panic button on both. I think we got to let both situations settle down. Neptune's an excellent coach, does an amazing job. We'll figure it out with those with the players that he has there. And and Oregon always finds a way to figure it out and upset somebody in a year like this where you're concerned. Um, the Pac-12, though, I'm hitting the panic button over and over again because it just doesn't seem like the bottom, the middle to the bottom half of that is a really talented league right now. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think number one, I think that the transfer stuff's affected them some. You mm-hmm. know, they've lost some, they've lost some players in and out of them. You look at Arizona State, which is a pretty good basketball job in terms of how people support it at Arizona State in terms of the fan support. They've always seemed to have really good scores. It just seems like they've lost so many players the last few years. I mean, Jay Heath is coming off the bench at George, at Georgetown, and he was starting mm-hmm. at Arizona State. So you have all these different players that are kind of coming in and out. Um, I think that's really challenging. You know, I, you know, the top end of college basketball is going to find a way to main, to be the same. And actually, when you get through the middle, the bottom is going to find a way to be the same with all the transfers because you can bring in talented guys across the board. It's mm-hmm. those are in the middle that are finishing 7th, 8th, 9th in the Power 5 leagues that are going to lose young players to go play more when if they probably would have stayed, they'd have a bigger impact where they were as an upperclassman. So I do think those kind of challenges are going to cre- create themselves you look at the Pac-12, you just see a lot of teams like that. That have, you know, USC's done a great job, UCLA's done a great job. When you get outside of that, you know, it gets it gets really interesting. Washington State does a great job, but a lot of times because you look at their guys, you say, well, is this guy going to impact me? No, he stays. That gives him a chance to have a chance to win. Same thing that happened with St. Peter's last year. Everyone's going, oh, how did St. Peter's come so good? Well, those guys into the portal the year before and nobody took them. So they all went back. They play together. They recommit and have a chance to be a great year. You're going to see a lot more of that. Um, than what you think of in some of these power fives because not all power fives are the same. How special do you think DJ Wagner is going to be? DJ's a great kid. You know, I mean, like he was a guy like, you know, he's like number two player in the country, the player in the country. When we would text mm. him, he would text back every single time. Really? You know? mm. Oh, yeah. He was awesome with this. Uh, so I'm rooting for him. You know, the guys, you root for players like that that have mm. no ego in it, you know, and he and he would, we would go back and forth, you know, so I thought that was really cool. Because obviously he wasn't going to go to GW, but yeah. you know, I'm going to shoot the text out there to see if we <laughs> you're going to shoot your shot. I'm, I'm going to shoot my shot every yeah. time, you know. Um, but I root for him. I mean, I think he's a great player, and I think one of the best thing is he's going to be really locked into Cal, and I think that's important to have. You know, look at Calipari, an amazing job he's done at Kentucky. 
you're bringing in so many guys that he's fighting for buy-in with all the time, you know, trying to convince players to not only stay, but to play a role that he wants them to play and, and that convincing him that that role is going to be best for the team and best for them later. He's not going to have to worry about, about that with Wagner. He's going to be bought in from day one as a guy that he can really lean on. And I mean, this is a great class. Justin Edwards had a chance to work with him, recruit him a ton. And I remember watching him play and, and, you know, it's funny, we're in the summertime when he's a junior and, you know, I don't think he was ranked at the time. And I'm talking mm-hmm. to our staff and I'm saying, man, I think this is the best, one of the best players in the country. And they're like, he's not even ranked, coach. I'm like, I'm telling you right now, he's one of the best players in the country. Yeah. And so it's been great to watch his progression. Got a what were you seeing with him that made you think that when he wasn't ranked at the time? What was he doing? What you know, he's he got like? great size and feel. You know, a lot hmm. of times, you know, a lot of times guys get rated high. And that's why I think the five-star, four-star thing is so dangerous. Because mm-hmm. once you get rate, like if you're if your body's more mature, if you're the most mature 15 or 16 year old in the country, you're gonna really dominant be dominant and look and mm-hmm. look that way in these games. So you're gonna you're gonna move up that list pretty quickly. And if you get to number 10 in the country, it's not like they're gonna drop you to 50. Mm-hmm. So although you might be the hundredth best player in the country, you're gonna stop at 50. So that's such a dangerous level because they're so they're so cautious about dropping kids out of there. But with him, I saw a guy who could shoot the ball from the outside. He actually played with really good toughness and had a really had a high IQ of how he could score the ball. Hmm. He also has an incredible knack for making the big play and the big shot, whether it's a big shot block or a big three-point opportunity. He just has an incredible knack to do that. I love watching him in high school because he would find himself in these situations over and over again. And and so you obviously root for root for guys like that. He also has got an incredible sense of humor. <laughs> one of the one of the funnier guys at the CP3 camp and one of the funnier hmm. guys to text text and exchange with. Just a big fan of him. I think Cal's an amazing job with this class. And I think this class will really be bought into winning at Kentucky and doing what it takes to get that right back to where, where it's always been at that championship level. So is CP3 there? Yeah, CP does an amazing funny? with his camp. I mean, he's – I didn't know what to expect. I was lucky to get a chance to get an invite, to get a chance to work it. Uh, obviously, being a college coach, you don't get a chance to do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And CP was amazing. I mean, I'm talking he's with the kids. He's in stre- He's stretching with the kids. He's doing drills with the kids. He's given those kids a ton of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you, they, I mean, they can talk and share. And, and he, I mean, it's it's amazing to watch. And I don't think that he gets enough credit or our NBA players today for the stuff they do with their youth programs and youth teams. Like he takes a lot of pride in it. Hmm. So it was just great, you know. And then we, they had Devin Booker and all these guys come back and work out and play. And um, but he just does an amazing job with it. Like he's he is heavily involved in CP3 and heavily involved in the, in in the camp. And uh, you know, I, I couldn't say more more great things about him. I mean, he's been able to be a great NBA player, but what his legacy is going to continue to be is with the kids that he's having a chance to impact, and he's doing an amazing job with that. Will you have a strong Penn State take? You you texted me privately, and you're like, I gotta I gotta say something about Penn State. I have something I want to talk about here. What what Penn State take do you have? Uh, so they were leading Furman by 17, and then obviously Furman came back because Furman's very good, but. Mm-hmm. I've seen enough. Uh, these guys are making the tournament, and I will wager that they're probably not as amazing offensively as they've shown so far. I, I haven't I haven't checked since the Furman stats uploaded, but I think they were shooting forty eight percent from three over the first four games, which is hmm. that's just like that's not going to sustain for a full season. That's impossible. But I mean, I watched these guys at least for about twenty five minutes shut down a Furman offense that is frankly one of the best systems in all of college basketball like they know how to get great shots inside and out through dribble drive through kickouts and penn state just was not fooled by any of it for about 25 minutes but i mean even with that like i thought they played really well against butler 
I think that this Jalen Pickett guy is just a star. I mean, he's going to have a real chance to be an All-American, like a dark horse pick for it by year's end. Um, Miles Dredd, Cameron Winter, Seth Lundy, all really good complimentary pieces. Uh, they don't really do anything with rebounding, which kind of a problem if you don't hit shots, but uh, they actually remind me a lot of like late stage Davidson hmm. where they're playing five out. They could shoot their way into any game. They play fast. They're just really fun to watch. And they've always got this one guy who can just get his own shot anywhere from all three levels. Um, but yeah, these guys are making the tournament and it's crazy to say that because it would be their second tournament bid in the last 20 years. But I, I, I'm, I'm all in. Are you all in as well, Jamie? Well, I mean, I, I recruited and signed Jalen Pickett at Siena, so there's, there's, no <laughs> <one> that, <laughs> there's no one that's more in on Jalen Pickett than I am. <laughs> so, so you love that you know, from Will. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're spot on. I, I would say, well, you go back to the Siena days when he was a freshman, when you put shooting around Jalen Pickett and playing this pick-and-roll game, you know, he has an incredible ability to make pick-and-roll passes late, early, whatever it needs to be. And those guys will shoot well around him. I think at Siena we had we had a freshman make ninety four threes, and our and our second most threes on the team I think was seventy five maybe. I think we broke the I think we broke the MAC record at the time for threes made in a season. Definitely broke the Siena record. Hmm. Um, you can fact check those, but I think those are pretty accurate. Um, and a large part of that was Jalen Pickett um, and his ability to play off the screen and roll. You know, being involved with some of the conversation when he went to Penn State and being really, you know, really being close to Shrewsbury, like we were pretty close. And, you know, and we talked a lot about using how he was going to use Jalen. It's exactly what he said in the recruiting process. He said, you know, we're going to use him the same way you used him at Siena. We're going to bring him off the pick and roll, allow him to be able to create for others. We've got really good shooting around him. And, um, you know, he throws a great ball out of there. You know, I mean, um, the way he's able to make the pass off the screen and roll, he delivers it perfectly. He loves loves the pass. And growing up, he loved watching Magic Johnson. That was a big one of his favorite guys. And and uh, so I'm all in on Penn State. I had a chance to watch him practice as well. Their defense is always going to be there. Adding Funk on the perimeter and Lundy, you know, Lundy's still there, but adding Funk, another perimeter threat. You know, it's not always about making threes. It's about the threat of the ability to make threes. They just have the ability to be able to do that. The only concern would be their bigs. Uh, I am concerned about their bigs. The rebounding is something that that I would be concerned about, their ability to finish in there. But I think Jalen Pickett, you know, he was a guy when he got to Siena, guys, he didn't lose a pickup game all summer. And huh. he didn't lose a game. And, you know, he didn't – and we won a lot of games at Siena for the year. So he is a guy who's a winner, who loves to win. You know, state championship football team, I think, state championship basketball team. I and mean, you know, he's a guy – when you talk about a winner, you know, we don't use these – usually don't say – uh, guys, are, uh, black guys are winners. You know, usually that's like for for scrawny white guys, we call them winners. He's a winner. You know, <laughs> like he just wins every level, every place he's been. They've been able to win. I love your take about the NCAA tournament. Um, it'll be interesting as the year goes on, but I think he's a guy that can make make amazing passes out of pick and roll. Well, and just like I, when Chase Nair did preseason stuff, I said, you know, there's like six teams in the Big Ten. I'm confident are going to make it. And I mean, they haven't had that few make the tournament in a long time. And I was thinking, you know, I really cannot figure out who the seventh is going to be. But I think it's as reasonable as anything to say Penn State would be the seventh. What about Shrewsbury makes him special, Coach? Why, why is he uh, the right guy for Penn State to revitalize this program? Well, you know, it's, it's a blue collar it's a blue collar place. And, mm-hmm. and you need a blue collar coach who understands how to win that way. You know, um, you know, I would say Chambers was that way as well in some regards and mm-hmm. bringing that toughness and and making Penn State a place where people wanted to visit. You know, Shrewsbury has done it in a different way, coming from Purdue, having been with Brad Stevens with the Celtics. 
they want to they run a lot more NBA stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, they don't have a college playbook. You know, a lot of people have a college playbook. Like I watched Old Dominion play play today, and that's a college playbook. It doesn't mean it's bad, but it's a college playbook. But Penn State's running an NBA playbook. Mm-hmm. And when you have an, an NBA level point guard at six foot four and a half who can make those kind of plays and decisions, that's gonna really look well and it's gonna flow well. And you know, Brad Stevens said this to me last week. The reason they run this stuff in NBA is because it's the best stuff. Hmm. So if you're able to execute it, it's gonna put you at a at a really high level. But I think his his commitment to the defensive end of the floor, uh, the way they're you know, and they've got great size. I mean, you know, you got a six foot four and a half point guard out there. That's a major advantage. You know, the mm-hmm. average point guard in most of these leagues is six foot one. So you're three inches bigger at one position already. And Jalen happens to be just coming off a triple double the other day. He's also a great rebounder. So when that shot goes up, you know, he's the guy that's free to kind of come back. So having that kind of defensive mindset from a guy like Shrewsbury, you can switch all these guys around. It just gives you a lot of flexibility. I think he's done a great job of building this roster up in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I agree with Will. I think this is a, I think this is a team that you got to watch all year long. I will also say I cannot wait to watch these guys play Iowa and Michigan. Those games are going to be awesome. For sure. Um, what was the other? Oh, uh, Louisville. So Louisville, the way you say it, it's Louisville. It's not Louisville. It's Louisville. You have to say it with the Louisville accent. It's Louisville. It's Louisville. Um, on the flip side, it has not gone well out of the gate here for Coach Payne. And really just unbelievably unlucky with these one-point losses. Like, that's just insane the way these games have finished for them early on uh bhh obviously transferring over to louisville and will and i were talking about in our preview with louisville is just where's the shooting like i don't this is just going to be a problem where they have bhh playing the three and you're like this is not 1993 this is going to be this can be a struggle if this is the kind of the lineups that they're going to be forced to run um and obviously a lot of turnover going from mac to coach Payne and it's going to take some time. Uh, it's not great that all this is going on when TJ Wagner chooses Kentucky over Louisville. So it's kind of just the double whammy there, but I don't know. I, I think it's still a little bit early, but like how bad, like how bad is too bad out of the gate before you're like, all right, serious changes have to be made. And like, we have to throw scrap, whatever we thought we were going to be this year. We're going to have to change the lineups, change a lot of stuff up and like, just kind of figure this thing out because Louisville's one of those jobs where, yeah, like you can, uh, <laughs> you'll get a little bit of leeway, but it's still one of the premier top five, top 10 jobs in the country and that they have a different standard where you can't really wait that long. And I don't know. I think it's going to get really interesting in a hurry in Louisville for Coach Payne if this is how it continues. But what do you think based on what you've seen thus far from Louisville, Will? Uh, what's honestly been most alarming is how every first half uh, right, they were better about this against Wright State, but both against both Bellarmine and App State, they got dominated right out of the gate. They were not ready to play. They turned it over in some awful passing. No real desire to find good shots. And some of this, you know, goes back to what we said in the offseason, which is that they don't have shooters. There's no guard, like there's no true point guard. L. Ellis is trying his hardest, and God bless him, but he's not a point guard. He is a two guard. Um but I, I mean, I've just been the, the start of the games is really worrying. The fact that, you know, it, it's they have been unlucky to be 0 3, right? I think like they probably should have won against Wright State. Wright State hitting that buzzer beating three, that's not going to happen 10 times out of 10. That's just bad luck of the draw. But these other two, Louisville kind of made their own bed and had to lie in it. I mean, they were down, I think, as much as 15 against Bellarmine, almost 20 against App State. 
you cannot be doing that against teams that you know you have significantly more talent than. Um, it's dire. I really want it to work out because Kenny Payne seems like an awesome dude. Um, and it's awesome that he's gotten this opportunity, but you got to win a game soon. I mean, because I know it cannot feel good in the locker room. I know it cannot feel good knowing that all this has happened and you're going to Maui next where your first opponent is Arkansas. That's about as bad of a draw as you can ask for with a bad offense. And then coming out of that, you're going to be, you know, underdogs against Maryland, Miami, Florida State. I mean, it, it is realistic. They could be 0-9. I don't think they will be because, you know, just law of averages saying, like, you play enough games, eventually one of them's going to go your way. But even 1-8 and eight would be pretty, you know, problematic for them. What do you think, Coach? Well, I think, first of all, App State's a very good team. Wright State's a very good team. Bellman's a very good team. And, you know, sometimes when you step into college basketball and you schedule these games, you, there's this assumption that your talent is better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe one or two guys might be better, but they're not a better team. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the challenge is when you're scheduling early on. Like, I'll be honest with you, when I was coaching at Mount St. Mary's of Siena, I was looking for situations like Louisville. I was looking mm-hmm. for, you know, it's going to pay me 95000 with a first year head coach that have had some turmoil <laughs> in the last couple of years. I mean, just that's the team I'm looking for. I'm dying mm-hmm. to play them. Um, you know, one thing that happens with toxicity, you know what I mean? When things are tox- toxic in an athletic department, things are toxic in a program, people often think it's really easy to get that out. And honestly, mm-hmm. it's really difficult. Um, you know, you have, you know, there's all this like residue. There's a reason why, like, when you see someone toxic, when they're working with toxins, they're wearing these hazmat suits, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so you walk into these toxic situations and people think you're going to walk in like this and it's going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to be able to assess everything that's needed and you're not going to be able to do that. And I do think that's, I think that's tough. I mean, he's walking into a situation where they have all the stuff with Patino that's still over their heads. That's finally gone away. All the stuff with the AD finally gone away. All the stuff with Chris Mack. I mean, that's a lot of things going on in an athletic department that every one of those players and coaches has to deal with on a day-to-day basis, even though they have nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And would it be able to add no value to understanding what happened there? So they have to deal with those things. And again, I think those things are really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know they'll get the right kind of players in there. Again, I'm concerned with their level of shooting as well. Um, you know, if you can't shoot in this day and age, it's really hard to get there. Now, Kenny Payne's going to do a great job. He's going to get there. But I think we've got to understand that there's a lot of residue from the past that's remaining that mm-hmm. isn't out of there yet. And until we're until someone's able to get most of that out and he's able to get the kind of players in that he needs, it might take a little bit of time. Um, and I hope that he gets it. You know yeah. I, mean? I was mm-hmm. at a place where they were, where they had some toxicity before me. And now when I got there four or five years later, it was still there. It wasn't like it was gone. It was like people had pushed it under the rug or pushed it behind the door and it was still there. And the one thing is when you're the head coach, you got to open the door. And you see all the stuff that's there, and then you've got to build a plan out to kind of attack it. So I think he'll, I know he'll get the right kind of players in there. One and nine, one and eight, that, that's, they're going to probably be there. Um, mm. and, and because if you're Arkansas, you're looking to feast on a team like that as well, and it's not going to get any easier. Um, but I definitely believe in Kenny Payne. I believe in what he's doing. I believe in his staff there. You know, Nolan, who's there, was, was assistant at Duke. He helped get a lot of those guys to Duke. So they're going to have really good players. Danny Manning uh, as well. Figure it out. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they've got an elite staff, and I think it's just, like you said, 
they they're kind of like the Auburn of the ACC where just all kinds of crazy stuff going on behind the scenes. It feels like you're never 100 percent certain who's running Louisville. You're never really certain uh, what direction Louisville wants to be in. Um, I'm sure there's probably always going to be this subset of like, let's bring back Patino, like, like whatever else, let's bring him back. At least we won. And you know, you're going to always like, that was just something with Tennessee fans where it's like, bring back Fulmer. Fulmer never like, we, we need to do this. The <laughs> obvious going away from him didn't work. We had to bring him back. Um, but I think with his experience, and everything else, I wonder too, though, coach with him, do you think, because you, you did the more, in your journey, you did the, okay, we're going to be at Siena and then we're going to go to George Washington. And then we're going to go, you like, you're going one at a time. Basically yeah. you're building up to get more and more, uh, get your feet wet at smaller schools to kind of really learn how to be a head coach and be a CEO of a university. And he has been the associate head coach and he has been in the NBA. He has been with Cal. He has always seen what, um, uh, elite coaches like Tibbs and Calipari have done, but he's never actually done it himself. He's never been the lead league guy. And I wonder, do you think he, or do you think it's harder for these, for some coaches to make that transition because they're, they didn't start and take one of those jobs that may have not been the biggest job, but it may have been a better job for them to kind of learn the craft and learn how to be a CEO coach so that when they get to a Louisville or they get to a Duke or a North Carolina, it's not just like, Oh my goodness, the toxicity and everything else. Like this is, this is a lot. And a lot more than even I had expected being at Kentucky and uh, even with the Knicks, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I believe that the making that making that uh, moving that moving along that journey that way chronologically, mm-hmm. this level move to the next level. I do think there's value in that. Um, you know, by the time I got to GW, I knew who I was as a coach. I knew what right. mattered to me, and you know, and I was ready to handle any of the kind of expectation. Um, so I do think there's a lot of value in that. And, you know, the problem is ADs don't hire that way. Yeah. You know, they, they, they don't hire that way. They don't seem to have value in that. They, they want to go find the first shiny toy that they can. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's easy to sell. I mean, I, I do think hmm. the recruiting is different. Like, I, you know, one thing I think Kenny Payne's going to do a great job. I think he's going to do a great job of coaching. Number one, mm. I think he's a great coach. He's going to do a great job there. I think he's going to do a great job recruiting. Um, he's going to be excellent there. I think he's going to do a great job. Um, but some of the things you learn, I think a better way to look at it is like, what are some of the things that you learn along the way when you're at the lower level? Well, you kind of learn how to win without having something. Hmm. How do you win without having shooting? How to win without having rebounding? Uh, how to win without having a point guard? Like you kind of figure it out because you're at a level where maybe someone else is missing something. So, hmm. you know, everyone's kind of missing one component. So it really becomes about how to hide, how to hide your weaknesses and to use your, and to really play through your strengths. Um, so I think there's great value in that. I think the problem with that is if you're an AD looking at a coach coming from a lower level is, you know, I don't know if I was ever, I don't know if I ever had the most talent in my, on my team in any league I was in. Mm-hmm. So even if we won it or finished fifth or finished ninth, you know, so you really don't know what it, what it looks like when you have the most talent. I think it's easy to look at a guy who might've been at Duke as an assistant, but wait, we're going to have, you know, he's going to be able to coach our team like that, but mm. you're not going to have that same level of talent. Right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so it's a little bit different if I'm throwing the ball back to, you know, to Proctor at Duke versus whoever we're throwing the ball back, who is, you know, 300th in the country. It's a big difference. You know, Proctor's going to make you look pretty good. Um, where the other guy might miss open shots. You know, we had mm-hmm. we had guys at GW who were shooting about 32% from three on shots that you have to shoot 36% on to win, mm-hmm. right? So that 4% doesn't seem like a whole lot, but that's the difference between us winning 18 games and us winning nine games, mm-hmm. right? So we had to kind of pivot our strategy just because we knew this. When you go a year and a half, you go, this guy's shooting 32% off, off catch and shoot jumpers from the corner. You start pivoting. You're saying, we can't, we can't win this way. 
Mm-hmm. So then you have to change your strategy a little bit. And so when you kind of work up, you you don't have a fear to change your strategy some to fit what you need to do because you've seen it have success or you've seen it work before. Do kids want to know that though? Like, is it a good idea to tell them, hey, you're shooting 30 per- 32%? Uh, I, always, I always told them. I mean, we yeah. would bring kids in. And we When we recruit them, mm-hmm. you know, we would tell our, our threes and fours, you're going to take 250 threes a year. Mm-hmm. And you need to be at 36% or 35% use these number. Um, but we needed them to take that. And we would tell everybody on the team, this position is going to take 253s. Mm-hmm. You know, you might not take any shots off the bounce. Well, you're going to love this. Uh, you know, this <laughs> position, you're not going to take any shots <laughs> off the bounce. Like we were telling mm-hmm. our threes and fours, you should have zero assists on the year. Huh. And you should take mm-hmm. no shots off the bounce. Because if the threes and fours, they're not creative positions for us. They are spacers and shooters. Our ones, twos, and fives, we wanted to average – four assists to one, four assists to two, and three assists to five. Hmm. So those are the guys that were able to take some chances with some passes and, and play a little bit differently, right? So that's how we would explain it. Now, I got the GW, and we ran the same system. And we you know, we had a year we had Jameson Battle made 89 threes. We had uh, Maceo Jack made 85 threes. But with the level of shots that guys might have been getting, their percentages weren't at the level they needed to for us to go and take that extra jump, right? Hmm. So you got to have those kind of conversations if you know your system that way. And it doesn't mean they're bad players. It doesn't mean that. They're great players. The guys make 89 threes, whatever. The guys are great players. James Battle is a great player. We should talk about him. You know, he's he's an amazing player. He made our system look way better. Um, (laughs) But my point is, when you lose someone like that and you're throwing back to someone different, it's different. And as you make that as you make that progression as a coach, you learn how to coach without. So we won more games without Jamison Battle than we won with Jamison Battle, just because we were able to coach without him some and learn some things we could do that are a little bit different. I like it. Uh, Will, what's your stat of the week? Uh, so I, th- I think people who are Syracuse fans might not want to listen to this, uh, but Syracuse gave up 19 made threes on Tuesday against Colgate. Uh, that ties the all-time record in Syracuse program history. Oh, wow. Uh, who do they share this record with? 19 threes in one game. Yes. What conference? AC- it's in the ACC. Mm. So it was a conference game. Virginia. They are tied for second. That's a great <sighs> guess, though. I watched I watched a game where they where Virginia cut them up about three years ago. And, uh, I, I think it's, it's the one there I'm are many of. of those. There are many <laughs> of those of Virginia cutting, <laughs> cutting you up offensively. Those stand out. You're like, wow, that's in the yeah. Um I really don't know. It is Boston College. Huh. Boston College went 19 for 42 against them in March 2020. So technically Colgate's hit rate is even better. They went, they shot 50% from deep. But actually, here's another fun fact. Do you know who shares that uh, second place uh, metric with Virginia of 18 made threes? Is it a conference team? It is not. Texas? It's Colgate, who hit 18 threes against them last season. (laughs) So Colgate is responsible for two of the four worst three-point defensive performances in Syracuse history. Colgate gets up for that game, by the way. I I had a buddy who uh, went to Colgate on a basketball scholarship way back in the day from my high school. And uh, that was like the first photo he like pushed was like at the carrier dome of like Colgate and like being on the floor for that. I remember that. And it was just for whatever (laughs) reason, that was like a big thing uh, if you're in Northern because it's just huge and you're just you feel uh, like I I don't know. There's something about carrier dome, but man, it is not ending well in Syracuse. This is going to be I don't know. 
coach, do you think it's the same kind of appeal in the coaches circle? Do you think that job has the same level of appeal that it did 15 years ago? Yeah, I think, I mean, my raw opinion, which is, I always give my raw opinion. Yeah. I think. Not to put you on the spot with this question about serious. No, I, just, <laughs> I just think it's tough. Like, I think, I think at some point guys have to retire. Yeah. And I just, you know, I mean, now you earn the right. I played for a guy who coached for 49 years mm-hmm. at the same place. And I don't think anyone should tell Bayheim when to retire. And I don't think anyone should tell Coach Phelan when he should retire, right? So mm-hmm. I, I believe you built it. You get to coach it how you want to coach it. But um, I think it's challenging when, you know, like I, I think Syracuse always has the appeal. People mm-hmm. love Syracuse. But as your coach gets older, there's just all these questions of like, was well, this guy going to coach me? And that's that's a factor that's really hard. You know, like he can say, oh, I'm going to be here for all four years, whatever. And it's hard to believe that as these guys just kind of get older, you know, Izzo will run into the same thing. I mean, all these guys, as they get older, you just sort of run into that. So I think that's just a challenge where it is. I think Syracuse also, they, they lose early in the year. Yeah. This isn't something we haven't seen. And Colgate's a very good team. I mean, three Patriot mm-hmm. championships in a row. Um, you know, so obviously they, they've got the zone buster for Syracuse. <laughs> um, but I think that, I think it's going to be an interesting time for, for all of them. Um, I think Judah Mitz is playing really well for them. He's a freshman for them. Um, but, you know, rarely does Syracuse have freshmen that make impact like that. So that kind of tells you to say the roster, um, maybe they're lacking in some other areas. I'm going to be fascinated to see who takes over that job because it's also just following a legend at these stops. It's like following Izzo, <laughs> following Bayheim. Well, I think, I, mean, I think Red is, I think, I think they announced Adrian was going to be the, like this is years ago. It's going to be the coach in waiting. So I think one of the assistants is the coach in waiting. I, I saw that, but like, are we sure they're going to follow through on that? Then if it doesn't never, end well, because he was supposed to retire like five years ago. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's probably until he like gets another there. job, he might look around and be like, "All right, I guess Jim's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. I'm just going to go take another job because I don't know." <laughs> That's happened before. We've seen that Whoa. in coaching where you're at the coach in waiting. Um, what's it at Texas with Mac Brown, where Will Muschamp was the head coach in waiting at Texas, and he was like, "All right, I guess. Uh, all right, I'm going to go take the Florida job," and he never became the head coach at Texas. But I'll, I'll go back to how I started this. Yeah you don't retire when you have a good team. So yeah, <laughs> so let's let the year play out. See how it goes. Where it how goes. many 19.3 games? Uh, yeah. That Bay how, many, how many nights take. can you take that? And uh, right. we'll see where we are at the end. Uh, coach, what can the good folks uh, check out from you in the podcast front? You had the, I mean, big time gets as of like Will Hardy, the, the coaching legend now already making a big name for himself at, uh, in Utah, just throwing the Western conference for a loop. Yeah. Uh, out of the gate um you've had like you said you talked to brad like what uh what can the good folks check out from you and your program what you've got going on right now yeah you know jamie and last call with jamie and christian powered by speakeasy for sport it's been great to be able to get on the get on the line and ask the questions that i want to ask not as mm. a fan but as a coach and i've really tried to work really hard at that um you know we've got will wade uh, pod drop today we've got a second part of the pod dropping next week it's already got tremendous hits you know, we've had so many listeners. We're up to nearly 20,000 listeners already through wow. 16 episodes, 17 episodes. So we're feeling great about what we're trying to do. But it's really about just getting out and sharing the message and being able to to tell some of the stories. I mean, you're doing a great job with it. We've got so many great podcasters out there that are doing that. And and so anytime I can jump on and, and help out and contribute, I'm always looking to do that. I've got to get you on mine as well. Yeah. Um, we can talk some Tennessee Vols and, and we'll, we'll figure out where we can get you on as well. So um, <laughs> I'm just appreciative of you having me on here. But check us out on last, on last call. 
um, with Jamie and Christian, any place where you get your podcast. There you go. Will, what about you over on the Substack, statsbywill.substack.com? What are we writing about this week in college basketball? I'm always writing. So tomorrow, or well, Friday in this trap. So I have a piece on a, what I, you know, the September Heisman phenomenon, but for basketball, I'm calling it the November Naismith teams that balled out November and then uh, suddenly disappeared for reasons we're still trying to figure out. <laughs> Uh, but yes, yes. Well, I guess when this comes out, it'll be yesterday. Mm-hmm. I did a, a 2000 word piece on St. Mary's defense. I absolutely love watching that team play defense. It's very weird to go into a game and say, I'm watching this for the defensive stops, but that's mm-hmm. what I do with St. Mary's. And I did not used to do that because it used to be the offense, yeah. but Randy Bennett, man, that guy is a heck of a coach. I like it. I like it. I wonder if he's up for one of those West Coast jobs that might open up at uh, some point. Uh, there's the going to be going to be a the Pac-12 is going to be a hot spot for for yeah. coaching movement this off season. So and there's a lot of good talent in the WCC. A should, lot bro, of good they talent. Throw a couple, they should throw a couple million at him to to fix their situation. Yeah, like how does the San Francisco yes. coach get to Florida? Like how do you let him go coast to coast <laughs> like that when you're in the Pac-12? Just whew. yeah, I mean they're. They're, I mean, aren't they just sort of hiring guys that look like Billy Donovan? Over and over? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? like, it's like, let's just hire the next guy that looks like Billy Donovan. <laughs> so. hey, uh, I guess when you like what you like, when the court's named after him, you're like, let's just, <laughs> we need people in here. And they'll think, is that Billy Donovan? Is he back? Is that, is he back? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Will, Jamie on, thank you so much for the time. Jamie on is great reconnecting. Will, uh, Thank you as always, my friend, and uh, I'll talk to y'all both very soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're back. Chase Thomas Podcast. Go Big Orange Friday. Ryan Chumpert, Rocky Top Insider is here, not wearing orange once again to prove once and for all the man could not care any less. The heart for Tennessee athletics, the man graduated like five months ago and you would never know it. You would never know it. You would assume he was like an MTSU guy who's just covering, covering the Vols. Um, it's just his daily job. And that's, that's just where, where Ryan is at this point. Pretty accurate. And one of these days I might, I might just surprise you and break out some orange, but my day's not today. It's Thursday night. It's thir- well, it's Thursday afternoon. It's mm-hmm. my, my beloved Titans on Thursday night football. We'll see if we can win another game scoring 20 points at max. It's worked out pretty well most of this year. It's funny. I talked about him on the pod where I was like, the Titans are the white walkers of the NFL every year where everyone just on the periphery, everyone discounts them, right? Like every offseason, you're like, they're not winning the AFC South again. They're, it's the Colts this year. I picked the Jags to win the AFC South before the year. And uh, it's just one of those things where everyone around the league's like, they're not coming. They're, who's scared of the Titans? Like that's an old wise tale. The Titans are not coming. And then the Titans... You look around, you're like, oh, if uh, Ryan Tannehill plays in that Chiefs-Titans game, they're probably the one seed right now. And they were the one seed last year. They look like they're on a good path when you look at the schedule that they could be the one seed all over again. And you're like, oh, they're they're coming. The, the White Walkers. No one wants them. Nobody wants the White Walkers in the playoffs. Nobody wants to watch this team. Nobody wants to deal with them. They're like, oh, we have bigger fish to fry. Look, we got Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. Like, look at all these other things we have to deal with. And then they're like, but then there's this big storm coming. It's Derrick Henry. It's uh, this Tennessee Titans defense that's like has 80 pressures in two games. Like, that's that's coming down the pike. And you're like, I, I don't want to deal with this. No one wants to deal with the Titans, Ryan. No, no one does. And it's funny. This year, my expectations were, were much 
smaller or, you know, you trade A.J. Brown, you look at what the Titans have personnel-wise offensively, and it's like, man, you can't win anything. I mean, this receiving core, this offensive line, like, you're not winning anything with this. Outside of maybe the AFC South, I certainly wasn't putting that past uh, because Titans now own the Colts and a nice uh, change of the last 20 years into the last three years. But then this thing happened in which nobody can play offense this year. All the quarterbacks besides Mahomes, Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts, I guess Lamar's playing. Outside a handful of these guys, they're not playing well. And mm-hmm. all these teams that have better quarterbacks and better offenses all of a sudden aren't playing very well in offense. And the Titans, as expected, at least for me, have an elite defense and can muck up these games and can turn these games into Jeff Fisher circa 2004. Let's go out and maybe score 24 points and win. And if there's any, I mean, Mike Rabel, in my opinion, one of the top three, top five coaches in the NFL, and he's just absolutely phenomenal at playing to Tennessee's strengths and then winning close games. So I'm not sure it would necessarily say it's been a fun season because it's not fun when you can't watch your offense, can't get a first down in the second half to ice games. That's not necessarily fun. But it has been uh, still rewarding uh, that we're, we're once again in the hunt to be one of the top seeds in the AFC and, and the Colts are a dumpster fire. And I guess the Jags aren't a dumpster fire, but they're still not good. And, and the Texans are, are the Texans. So it'll be fun to waltz the third straight uh, AFC South title for sure. And maybe it'll surprise me when they get to the playoffs and, and win a game or two. There you go. It's a possibility. Um, it's a possibility for certain once you get in there. Um, how will the South Carolina game go, Ryan? How's it go, going to go? How's it going to go? How is the South Carolina game going to go on Saturday? Tennessee's going to win by a good bit of points. Uh, my question would be, South Carolina's run defense 13th in the SEC, really bad. I believe Florida ran for about 270 on them last week. My question is, when Tennessee's up by 17 points at halftime, we'll say 21 points at halftime, somewhere in that range, do they come out and do what Georgia did to them and what they did to LSU? where they have that drive in the second half where they just run six, seven minutes off the clock, basically running at every play, and South Carolina can't stop them, and it ends up in three points, maybe a touchdown? Or do they keep throwing the ball a lot? Do they keep full, we're going to run our offense like we normally run it, foot on the pedal? To me, that's going to be the difference in the in this game of whether Tennessee wins by 24 points uh, on Saturday or whether they, they go out there and win by 35, 40 points like they did against Missouri. What do you think ultimately happens? The latter. Uh, I think yeah. Tennessee will, will run its offense pretty normally. And you may have may have a drive in the fourth quarter where you're, you know, like what Tennessee scored two touchdowns in the last five minutes against Missouri. I don't think that'll happen. I don't think Tennessee will get to 66. Uh, but I do think this is a game Tennessee is going to be in the mid to upper 40s at least, may even get to 50s. And South Carolina's offense is dreadful enough to begin with. And with, then you throw into a position where they're going to have to be throwing the ball a lot. I just don't see see many paths to success for the Gamecocks of hanging in this one. I think I think Tennessee wins. I think Tennessee covers with ease, uh, and I think uh, the the big orange train rolls on to Vanderbilt uh, for for the Commodore Senior Day. I never would have thought before the year. And look on the pod, I said that Tennessee. I I picked ten and two, and they split Alabama, Georgia, and then they lose a dumb one to like a South Carolina. Now that we're here, I think if that were to still happen, if that uh, was the case, they lost a dumb one these last two weeks it would be painstakingly more painful than I ever would have ever anticipated that uh, preseason. Um, I also think it's funny. I don't know if you agree with this, but I think Vanderbilt poses a bigger challenge than South Carolina this week. I think Vanderbilt might be a better game than 
than South Carolina this weekend. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you just look at the way South Carolina is built, and it is not a good recipe to play Tennessee with Mm -hmm. the strengths and the weaknesses of that team. So I don't expect either of those games to be overly competitive, which I don't think you do either. But, you know, I actually – I'm pretty – feels pretty strong. That takes pretty accurate that Vanderbilt poses at least a similar challenge, if not a bigger one. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Carolina does and I think when you go back to your point about how much more painful it would be now for them to lose this game I think a big part of it is I think the easy options were Georgia or excuse me for a upset loss were Kentucky uh, or South Carolina Kentucky significantly worse than I expected for the season and I wouldn't say I'm surprised by how South Carolina's turned out but if you told me South Carolina was staring down six and six for the season I wouldn't have been shocked I at least thought Spencer Rattler would be playing at a solid level. I mean, I never thought he was going to be a Heisman candidate or some of the outrageous things people were saying in the offseason. But I thought Spencer Rattler's going to be better than what South Carolina had a quarterback last year. It's going to be better than what South Carolina's had a quarterback in the last few years. That hasn't been the case. He's been really bad. And I think that makes South Carolina, even if you take away, let's say Tennessee was already had two or three losses coming into this game. It's like I, I just don't think you would see this game as near the threat that it, it potentially could have been when we looked at it before the season. What's the matchup to watch in this one? Uh, I would say uh, this isn't necessarily a matchup, but I look at can Tennessee force turnovers uh, against the South Carolina offense that is prone to turn the ball over. They have over two turn averaging over two turnovers a game, and that's the most in the SEC. Tennessee's defense, while it certainly had its shortcomings and its pitfalls this season, has been pretty good at being opportunistic and forcing turnovers when the opportunity arises. And I think that. Sets the stage for a game where you feel Tennessee's going to win comfortably. One, if Tennessee can get a couple or get a turnover early, I think you can see this game get out of hand really quickly. And then in the second half, uh, when I think you're going to see South Carolina having to throw the ball more and pressing a little bit, I think that's a really bad recipe uh, for Spencer Rattler. And certainly we noticed Tennessee defense is a lot better when they know the opponents are going to pass and they don't have to, to play against the run and then leave its secondary out there to try to guard. So uh, that's kind of what I look at, look for. Uh, I think maybe if you you want to look elsewhere of how does South Carolina maybe stay in this game, if Marshawn Lloyd plays, uh, can South Carolina run the ball uh, well against the Tennessee front that's been really good defending it? I think that's really the only path you have until into looking at South Carolina. I don't see any path to South Carolina winning, but South Carolina being competitive in this game, I think it's Marshawn Lloyd playing and them running the ball like they did in that Texas A&M game. Do you think the corner spots are now settled? Do we Are we just like, all right, Turnage and Slaughter are the guys? I mean, at this rate, they would probably be the starters next year uh, out of the gate. Like, has that just been kind of solidified? Is it just Kamal Haddon, just the injuries and not being able to stay on the field? And then Christian Charles just not uh, playing what I think. He's got a lot of opportunities, but it just doesn't seem like he's the guy. But we also saw the worst of Brandon Turnage in like that Florida game and but he was still a former four-star kid, all kinds of talent, and he just stayed with it, stayed with it, stayed with it, and has gotten good. And obviously Slaughter, uh, we thought, was just going to be a backup safety. And then it's like, okay, no, Slaughter actually is fine at corner, and he slides down. And I don't know. Do, have they figured it out, do you think? Have we seen enough to be like, all right, Slaughter and uh, Turnage are our guys, and they've, they're have our best option, and they're going to be fine? I think they're content uh, at that spot. I think they would like that to be the answer. And I think... Whether Haddon and Charles are healthy or not, you're going to see those two be the starters uh, here down the stretch. Now, if they play poorly, I think there will be opportunities uh, for Haddon and Charles. But I do think you're right. They're very content to roll uh, 
with those two. And it's funny, you go back and forth the season in fall camp, and we're talking about Tennessee's secondary. We felt pretty good uh, about, or at least we felt pretty confident, good probably wouldn't be the right word, we felt pretty confident that the two starters at safety would be the two seniors, uh, McCullough and Flowers. But at corner, it, it was a lot of, there was a lot of bodies here. They have a lot of guys that seem like they can play. How high of a level can they play? And I think that's really come to fruition over the course of the season. They've had so many injuries there. They've rotated so many guys. And it's a lot of guys that play at pretty similar levels. And just the fact that I think Turnage especially has started, has played really well the last couple of weeks. Slaughter certainly made some plays as well. I think when you combine that with the fact that both Haddon and Charles are banged up, I think they're, Tennessee's more than, more than willing uh, to roll with those two. And one thing more in maybe the macro going forward is uh, I think get Christian Charles back to safety uh, next year would would be how I'd play it if I was Tennessee. I think he is just a lot more comfortable there and really looked better in his limited opportunities before he got injured there as a freshman uh, than he has at corner as a sophomore and a lot more opportunities. Um, do you think Jalen Hyatt, he's talked about this a lot, pretty openly about the, the going home to South Carolina and obviously not uh, picking South Carolina and just what went on with that recruitment. But do you see Jalen Hyatt? Because it's just, he said he's gonna have like i think he said like an extra gear or something for this one um i don't know do you think it's wise to throw that out there before this game and do you think uh we should we should expect to see a big time uh hyatt game and also how much does tillman's availability affect that because we didn't see him last week and i guess that was because the final idea on what the reasoning or the rationale was was because of the wet field and we're just not going to risk it but I also think it's just kind of disrespectful to Mizzou to be like, yeah, we're, we're feeling pretty good. Well, like he could play, but it's a wet field and we don't want to risk uh, our best receiver uh, out against you guys. We think we can beat you just fine uh, without him. And they're right. 38 over in the second half. And that was, that was fine. Set an offensive record without Cedric Tillman. Um, I don't know. What, uh, what do you make of those two variables here? I think it's not a bad idea to make that comment before you play a team that you're a lot better than, and you know you're going to have a big game against. You know, maybe, I know, and I think it was maybe less publicized, but there was some article, it might have been, I can't remember who it was, so I'm not going to give, give credit to anybody, but one of those, about like many articles breaking down the schemes of the Tennessee-Georgia uh, game entering it, you know, Jalen Hyatt had some sort of comment of, he knows that Will Muschamp, and I believe the offense coordinator uh, for Muschamp at South Carolina were on Georgia staff now, the guys that didn't offer him. He seemed aware of that, and certainly I don't think that necessarily played a role, but obviously it didn't come to fruition for a big game for him uh, against, the, against the Bulldogs, but South Carolina's not Georgia, so I don't think that's going to be a bad idea necessarily. And I think you'll see him come out motivated. I think he'll certainly have a solid game, how big of a game it'll be. I don't know. I mean, how many times does Tennessee run the play where nobody gets within 20 yards of Jalen Hyatt in coverage? We'll see. Maybe Josh Heupel saves a couple of those uh, for – for the rest of the season, but uh, I expect him to play well. Certainly, I think Cedric Tillman's status will have uh, a decent-sized impact on what he does, too. Yeah, I, I'm i excited, nonetheless. Uh, but are we sure Tillman plays? Do you think it's like done deal that he's playing in this one? No, not really. I don't, I, I'm not going to pretend to have any sort of grasp on what Cedric Tillman's situation is. I was surprised that he didn't play last week. I, if I had to bet, I would bet he's going to play this week, but... I can't say that I have 100% certainty that he's going to go. Do you think Dylan Sampson has a big role this week and down the stretch? Yeah, I do. I think at least these last two games in a regular season, and I think it's almost like a little bit of an audition for him uh, if Tennessee were to make the college football playoff because 
He saw it last week. By far the most opportunities he's gotten in an SEC game. He ran with it. He played, no pun intended, he ran with the opportunities. And he was really fantastic. I mean, he was Tennessee's best running back last Saturday. And I think and when you look at these final two games, and two games that I think Tennessee feels comfortable that they will score a lot of points and they will win handedly, I think it just makes more and more sense to give Samson more opportunities and see if he can run with it, especially when you combine that with the fact that Jabari's small shoulder is once again bothering him this season and kind of continues to be at least a a nagging injury. So uh, I almost view these last three weeks, going back and counting the Missouri game last week, as a little bit of an audition for Dylan Sampson. Get his feet wet, get more comfortable playing in bigger bigger games, even though it won't be big games compared to the college football playoff, and Tennessee ends up making it to the playoff. You have some sort of feel for if you feel confident rolling with him and being able to play three running backs, or if you just want to roll with right and small. Um, I'm curious to see what happens here too. And I mean, this goes back to, um, the, the recruiting aspect of this where Will Stallings, uh, decommits from Tennessee this week. And then immediately was like, Oh, uh, there has, to, let's, uh, point, let's connect some dots here. All right. He de- uh, decommits this week. Uh, uh, Ke- what is it? Khalifa Keith. Is that it? It's that's, that's how I've been rolling with. I right? can't say I know Khalifa Keith has been what I've been saying, but I'm not, I'm not positive of the pronunciation there. That first name. Okay. Um, but that seems like the the rationale, right? And it seems like he's talked to Jerry Mack and company. And I, I'm going to go ahead and assume that it was just... And part of it, too, is like he's having to go from Vegas to Tennessee. So his family really... It's going to be more difficult for him to come watch. And like I think Keith is from Kentucky, right? He's a Kentucky running back. so From Alabama. Or from Alabama, but he was committed or was committed, committed to, to Kentucky. Kentucky. That's right. Okay. Yep. Um, but he's close by either way. Significantly Birmingham. closer regional. And um, that... That feels like a better fit uh, for Tennessee. Deshaun Bishop, I guess. Whatever we can do. We we just can't get Deshaun Bishop in orange and white. It's unfortunate for old friend Ethan Stone. He he wants it more than anything, the Carnes legend, to be a Tennessee ball, but it doesn't doesn't look good. No, it doesn't. And, you know, uh, I I think you're right. I think Khalifa Keith is the guy to look at with the Will Stallings uh, decommitment. I think you just look at the fact, and certainly him being out in California has a little bit to do with it, too, but... Stallings hadn't been to campus once since he committed it. He camped and committed at Tennessee back in June. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith has been there multiple times. He decommits from Kentucky last week. He immediately visits Tennessee after for the Missouri game. That's just basic connecting the dots in college football recruiting. It, it seems like Tennessee was very content uh, to let Stallings not be a part of go and not be a part of this class. And, and it certainly seems like Keith is target number one uh, running back uh, now with him. Uh, Stallings not a part of this class and. Again, Deshaun Bishop kind of just seems like the guy that's just lingering out there. It's always a possibility. Like mm-hmm. no one's ruling out Deshaun Bishop being a part of this class, but it never seems like it's truly likely or, or the favorite to be what happens. So we'll see what happens there. But I do think Keith is probably the number one guy since he's targeting at running back. Yeah, but we'll see ultimately where it goes. I'm not really concerned about Tennessee running back. I think they're pretty much they're in good shape even just next year with Sampson and Wright being there two-headed monster um i think that's just gonna be gonna be more than fine health permitted uh devin hobbs though looks like he is trending towards the vols i was thinking about this this week and i wonder if you agree with this ryan i think hobbs would be a bigger 2023 edition than nico and part of that is just i am so comfortable with hypo developing quarterbacks at this point where look nico i have all the uh, I'm excited to watch Nico Yamaliava play football for the Tennessee Volunteers. I think he'll be really good. That being said, Taven Jackson being really good for this team, 
Joe Milton being really good next year, uh, getting someone else in the portal, whoever that might be. I'm just not really concerned about the quarterback position anymore for Tennessee. Like, I think that's one of the least, like with Heupel and Gullish and company, this is not really a thing. What I am concerned about is the trenches. It's the last, last thing um, that connects Tennessee to Georgia. And a five-star defensive tackle like Devin Hobbs, Witch, and Davian Bradley, and getting a multitude of those guys, because you can't just have one class filled with those guys. You need to build off that. You need to build off the Tyke West and the Joshua Josephs of a season ago. I don't know. I feel like Hobbs would be bigger and beating Georgia for him at the end. I, I don't know. I think for me, it would be a bigger, it would be the biggest recruiting win of this cycle for Tennessee, and it wouldn't be Nico. Is that is that crazy? I agree with the biggest recruiting win, mm. the way you phrased that part of it, or the most impressive get, because I'm sure NIL, I'm sure that's that's some sort of a factor in his recruitment, but that was the factor in, mm. in Nico's recruitment. And for Tennessee to go head-to-head against Georgia and Alabama, two guy that they, those two schools desperately wanted, and they had the full-court press on, uh, and Tennessee didn't get the final visit. He went to both Alabama and Georgia uh, after his last visit to Tennessee for the Alabama game. To me, I think you're right. That would be more impressive. That's more of a signaling of Tennessee's back in the recruiting world. And that would be the first guy I mean, I can think of in man, a long time where Tennessee's been able to go up against those two schools or, heck, even in Ohio State or Clemson and land a top five-star guy that they really, really want. Now, I'm not willing to say that it would be Tennessee's biggest get just because at the end of the day, everything you said about quarterback, I agree with all that. You have a lot of confidence in Josh Heupel and Alex Golish, as you should. But quarterback's the most important position on the field, and Nico has the talent to be an elite, elite guy. And I, to me, I, that still just feels more important than putting the emphasis on one defensive lineman uh, to, to make that big of a factor. So yes and no is my answer. I do think it's a more impressive get. I think if you told me Tennessee could have one of Nico or Davian Hobbs in this class, who do I take? I take Nico, uh, but Hobbs is probably right behind him, and I would, another thing I'd say is I feel really confident in Rodney Garner recruiting defense alignment and developing them and being really good. But you do look at what Tennessee's done in these two classes. A lot of really good guys on the edge. A lot of good pass rushers, especially in this class. A little weaker in, in the interior. And Hobbs being an interior guy, uh, just a massive get. And a uh, guy I think will, will have a huge role for Tennessee pretty early on. Yeah. Um, either way going to be fun to follow um but it's it's huge i wonder what that jumps up what do you think devin hobbs and uh Khalifa keith put them at if they both end up in tennessee where do they fall I'm trying to i looked at the 247 rankings earlier this week when i was writing the stallings piece they dropped from 11 to 12 i feel like it was pretty tight from like 7 to 12 mm-hmm. um so I, i'll say somewhere in that 7 or 8 range would be my guess i want to say florida 7 right now maybe tennessee mm-hmm. would still be behind them after adding both those guys but i think they'll, they would be back in the top 10 um, obviously Keith does not have a decision date. We're about a little over a week, uh, I guess an eight days away from, from Hobbs's commitment. If you got those two in the next two weeks or, or something like that, obviously Hobbs, will, if Tennessee gets them, will come in, like I said, eight days. Uh, I would think Tennessee will be in the top 10. I'm not sure how far uh, into the top 10, though. Are you an orange helmet guy? I don't know. I thought they looked good. I didn't really like the graphic to do with the jerseys but i just you know how they had all the orange helmets in the background mm-hmm. and it was really zoomed out like i didn't feel like i got a good feel for it and then mm-hmm. all the other pictures that they they tweeted out were all like shoulder up of joe milton it wasn't the full uniform so i think it looks good um i like them i don't know to what degree i like them uh and 
it's probably the most excited I've ever been to get in a stadium and see what Tennessee's uniforms look like. Because I just feel like I haven't gotten a great feel for them uh, just from the graphic and the pictures they tweeted out. But I think they look good. I'm surprised they haven't they didn't have it like on the like one of the pressers just like open just so you could get some visuals or something like that to hype it up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And like the in the in the press conference room, they have like all of Tennessee's helmets in there. They have right, the like, gray, they have the white, they have the one they wore the white ones they wore with the dark mode last year with the black outline. So what's I'm, going I'm on? surprised too. Yeah, yeah maybe they're uh, nervous about how the reception's gonna be for this. Maybe there's a little bit more concern uh, over it because I think the dark mode looked great and the black helmets look really good. Um, and the smoky grays obviously are a fan favorite, but these are more, th- this is a, uh, <laughs> this is uncharted territory. The, the orange helmet yeah. here. No, you're right. It really is. And it's, I would be interested to see also what they look like with orange pants. Um, I know that was a popular sentiment. I'm not like, man, they should have worn orange pants necessarily. I, what I worry about with the orange pants is that they're going to look like Clemson, mm. uh, orange helmets, white jerseys, orange pants, especially in a game at South Carolina. It's like, that's, does Clemson is, or did we get here a game a week too early for this game? Um, but no, uh, I think they look solid. I don't think they would look good with the orange jerseys. So I hope we don't see them uh, in any home games. But to me, they look good. I'm I'm cool with them being a, a part of the rotation for away games. South Carolina ending with Tennessee and Clemson back to back is just uh, that's rough, man. That's that's it's, rough. It's especially rough when you lose to Florida the week before by thirty. Yeah, man. Um, I don't think they're going to be winning Co-Coach of the Year awards this year with uh, Shane Beamer and Josh Heupel. No, it's a shame. It's a shame for Shane Beamer that he doesn't get to play SEC teams that have already quit trying this November. I mean, it, the pump up he got from beating an Auburn and a Florida team that combined for zero <laughs> SEC wins in the month of November last year was was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. But some people uh, had them ahead of Tennessee in the preseason polls uh, in preseason SEC predictions, and like I was it. Was it South Carolina or Vanderbilt who got the one SEC East championship? Vote? That was Vanderbilt. Yeah. yeah. But there was some stuff where it was like, oh, Kentucky and South Carolina were the sleeping giants with the Spencer and Will, and that has obviously not been the case. There were a lot of Spencer Rattlers better than Hinton Hooker uh, takes in the offseason that were just so painfully stupid at the time that any, anyone with a functioning brain could could figure <laughs> out that, that that was not going to be the case when, when they stepped on the field. I don't know how they... I don't know how anyone watched South Carolina's offensive scheme last year and then watched Spencer Rattler with Lincoln Riley in the Big 12 and thought that he was going to be better in the SEC with South Carolina's talent in the scheme that they run. It, it just it just made no sense. No. Um, but either way, we're down the pike here. Um, last two weeks, we'll end on this comfortable playoff. I, I think Tennessee's in a good spot. Um, as long as they went out, I think they're going to be okay. I think a lot of the Tennessee fans, if you're nervous about USC and TCU, my thing is that like I would be pretty floored if both run the gauntlet. One running the gauntlet, I think it's very possible. Very, very uh, possible. Like TCU finishing undefeated or USC winning out here against three ranked teams. Like both would not surprise me. Or one of the two not would not surprise me. But I think both uh, would. And if only if that holds out and Tennessee wins out, I don't see a path of Tennessee actually not making the playoff. As long as that happens and i'm not even convinced that a 12 and 1 usc jumps tennessee um we'll see uh but i'm not there i'm definitely not concerned about ohio state and michigan both getting in um after their loss and seeing how that goes especially if it's michigan i'm not the least bit concerned about that one um 
I also just think that the committee, they think about the TV aspect and I'm sure TV executives are in on these text messages and things like that. And I think the whole world or the whole college football world wants Tennessee versus Ohio State. I think that is a big, big thing of like Hennon Hooker versus CJ Stroud, the best offense versus the other best offense. I think if you can find a way to get there, I think they would very much prefer that to be the case. And I I think we saw from the first ranking, they do not want TCU in there being behind Bama right out of the gate. I don't think they want Georgia Bam or Georgia TCU. I think they want to avoid that at all costs, but I don't know. I, I, I think Tennessee is going to be fine though. I think they're, they're in really, really good shape to still make the playoff. Do you agree? Uh, I agree. They're in definitely good shape. I, I definitely think a one, a twelve and one USC would get in over them without a without a single second of doubt. I'm with you on Michigan, Ohio State, especially if it's Michigan. Uh, and then again, that LSU scenario, which is very unlikely that LSU runs the table and beats Georgia. That's the chaos scenario. I don't know what the committee would do. I certainly think Tennessee should be able to get in over LSU in that scenario because. What are we? What are we doing here? What does head to head mean? Nothing. Tennessee. Right. You feel like you have the tiebreaker. Tennessee has one less loss. Well, LSU won the SEC championship. Those two things would even each other out. You'd think the fact that Tennessee won by thirty on LSU's field would, would be the difference. But I also don't have enough faith in the committee uh, to make that decision correctly. So I'm with you. I think at least one of TCU and USC lose. I think the fact that you had everyone else in the Pac-12 eliminated last weekend probably isn't going as noticed as it should be. Uh, maybe the Oregon got a lot of love, but the UCLA loss didn't get a, a lot of recognition. To me, that's all huge. I'm with you. I think at least one of those teams will lose, and Tennessee will get in. But again, that LSU, that remains the X factor out there that, that I just don't know about. and not sure how the committee w- would judge and break all that down. It's really easy. Tennessee's the SEC West champions. Like That's one of those where it's like, because divisions are stupid and it looks like they're getting scrapped uh, sooner rather than later, based on that report out this afternoon on uh, Sankey uh, moving towards divisions being scrapped and they're not doing the 14 pot, which is good. I'm glad they're not doing that because that would have sucked. Um, but I, I am, I don't know. It's just like one of those where Tennessee's kind of, they're kind of screwed in that way where they're not going to be able to be the last team seen, right? Like they're just going to be away, out of sight, out of mind, when all these championship games are going on and LSU, if they were to run the gauntlet, it's like, Oh look, they beat Georgia and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, okay. We, I understand it was a long time ago now, but the game still happened. You could still go yeah. back. Tennessee did beat Alabama. They beat, did beat LSU. And in a different, in the new circumstance, it would be a Tennessee Georgia rematch and the sec title game. And that would be like the fairest of all, right? To see who gets yep. in the playoff. It's like you to get into the playoff, you have to beat Georgia uh, in a rematch. That's how you have to get in. And then you control your own destiny like that. But that's not the way it's set up. And Tennessee did everything they're supposed to do outside of losing to literally the number one team in the country. I would just be surprised if that being their only blemish, they don't find their way in. I would be be pretty surprised. Yeah, I would agree too, uh, generally speaking, because I think they're going to get the help that they need. But again, I think all you said, everything you just said is accurate that Tennessee is going to be really out of sight. Not only the last week, I think you're going to be out of mind the last back half of the season and the way Kentucky's falling apart. You're going to look at Tennessee and you're going to say, well, they haven't played in the big games or they haven't won a big game since October 15th when they beat Alabama. And that's literally, you look at it, that's the dead halfway point in the season. When you look at a September to November regular season. So uh, that that would be my concern. I still think the resume is good enough that that shouldn't matter and probably won't matter. But again, it's kind of like it's kind of like a fish. It's kind of like 
targeting calls. It's kind of like what's a catch in the NFL. I just don't have any confidence in what the committee's going to do. They change their criteria for what matters every week. Uh, there never seems to be any consistency, so I'm not going to pretend to know what they're thinking or what they're going to do. There you go. Uh, Ryan Trevor, what can the good folks check out from you over at Rocky Top Insider this week? Yeah, so plenty of stuff, uh, get, getting everyone ready for the Gamecocks this weekend, some basketball stuff from both Colorado, uh, a, a disappointing loss in the win over Florida Gulf Coast, and then uh, a little bit of stuff that will be on tap today and tomorrow uh, wrapping up the fall baseball season. So plenty of stuff uh, with all three sports, and uh, both Rick and I will be in Columbia this weekend with full coverage of uh, the Vols at williams Bryce Stadium. There you go. Ryan Shepard, always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Sounds great. All right, we're back here on the Chase Thomas Podcast. Scott Cummings, old friend of the program, is here. Oak Ridge head football coach. He's got a new good-looking hoodie. Uh, the Oak Ridge merch crew coming through for Coach Cummings. Coach, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm good. Doing all right. Hope you're. Not, I'm glad you're doing better. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm glad uh, that we were able to make this work today, Coach. Um, I'm excited. Uh, I will say, though, we are in mid-November and you still got a strong base going. You still got a strong tan going that I absolutely do not have. But you are fully, you're, it still looks like it's summer when we're doing the spot. Man, when you're outside as much as we are, I guess you just keep that year-round tan a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> you know, let, I'm, I, you know, finally it's sunny today. Yesterday mm-hmm. it was really cold and windy and cloudy. Uh, the day before it was misting rain during practice. Today it's just really cold. Yeah. Uh, how are the guys responding to the cold weather? You know, not bad. We've had a good uh, last two days of practice, I think, and uh, especially on Wednesday or Tuesday. Tuesday was, I thought, one of our more spirited good practices we've had, to be honest with you. And, mm. uh, you know, naturally this time of year and, you know, it's hard to the monotony of the monotony of practice again, you know, and all that, you know, it wears on anybody after a while. But um but overall, I think we'll be ready to go. How healthy is your team right now? Well, I mean, knock on wood, we're as you know healthier than we were since preseason. Mm-hmm. You know, we it's been a you know a battle all year, you know, in that regard, and um, you know between that and just you know kids, you know breaking kids in that have zero varsity experience and all those things. I think we're at a, the best point we've probably been at you know all year right now and that's good because i mean the opening game against south doyle uh where y'all were pretty healthy and showed what you could do especially just all the different offensive weapons and just where you've grown in uh with especially dozier right deshaun dozier has just been so good uh the last few weeks and then getting uh hunley back um you just have a collection of backs and then brandon hayward obviously making the big time play uh last week to block the the field goal at mcmahon county um all your skill guys uh your son being back uh that obviously being super helpful as well um it's it's a it it makes your team i don't think a lot of folks around east tennessee has seen your team at full strength outside of like the south Doyle game and now folks are starting to see it and i i think uh that may have worked in your favor a little bit in terms of seating so now you kind of uh we're in a different group than if you've been healthy all year maybe you have a tougher tougher go of things but um as of right now it uh, it's a good spot to be in right yeah you know we're we're still playing and mm-hmm. there's only eight eight teams left so um 
that's always a good thing. And, you know, it's where we were, where we wanted to be. It was hard, you know, at times and maybe some people didn't see us actually getting to this point, but, but we're here and we got a great opportunity tomorrow night. So, um, you know, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's always a growing process too, when you're, you know, new coach and, you know, at a place. Um, I think, I think we've had some growing pains, you know, um, whether it's coaching staff, whether it's players, and you add to it, the injuries and all the stuff. And, you know, at the end of the day, though, it's made us who we are right now. And, and I'm proud of, of who we are right now. And, uh, we've had to have a lot of kids grow up a little bit and to their credit, they're doing it. And, and, um, so, you know, the process, the process can be, uh, you know, tough sometimes. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, I'm glad that, that we're where we are, honestly. What flipped uh, in the postseason for this group? Well, I mean, you know, like you said, I mean, the bottom line is we're just, you know, a, a healthier bunch than we were earlier in the year. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we went through, you know, what, uh, six, six games without, you know, Connor. We went, mm -hmm. uh, what, four or five games without Elijah Rogers. You know, we have had uh, a couple of season-ending injuries to some guy, a couple of guys, and we've had to have, you know, we've on the offensive line, you know, there was only one, one kid that was playing for us that had any varsity experience at all, at mm -hmm. all. I mean, I'm talking about none. Um, so, you know, we've, it's just been a process to, to kind of get that experience and keep coaching them hard and get them ready. I mean, it, there's no, there's no way around it. You know, it's not college where you go out and just recruit a guy that's going to come in, you know, somewhat ready. We, we got to get them ready no matter what. So, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been a journey with it, but, you know, I think, you know, you look at the offensive line right now, for example, and, you know, we're a grittier bunch than, than maybe we were early on. And, um, you know, we've, we've grown not just in, you know, maybe some toughness, some mental side of it, but also just uh, maturity as a player, you know, as a high school football player and knowing what it's like out on a Friday night with a couple of thousand butts sitting in a seat or whatever, you know. So, um, you know, Ethan Garza, you know, is now a quarterback and played, I don't know, five games or so or whatever it's been um, now. So he's making growth now and he's a kid that didn't even play football the last two years so um you know it's it's just been something that we've had to grow through and we've gotten better for it how is garza being inserted into the starting line of a quarterback spot how has it changed uh your offense in the last five games well you know ethan garza's strength is getting the ball in and out of his hand he's mm. uh, got a very quick release so the short game has been has been good, you know, with him at quarterback. We've been able to, you know, either whether it's just a called quick game concept or, you know, just simple stuff like hitches or whatever, you know, he, he gets the ball in and out of his hand or uh, maybe an RPO that, uh, you know, it's taking him a, a little while to understand that it's okay. You know, like <laughs> if you see grass, throw it, throw it you know, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but I think he's – 
uh, you know, he's grown a lot with it and still makes mistakes here and there, but all high school quarterbacks do. And, uh, but his strength is definitely is getting the ball in and out of his hand. He's, he, he's really good at that. Also moving out of the pocket. He, um, I don't know if that's something that's kind of calmed down a little bit, but he, uh, in that first start, um, rolling out a lot and getting, but he's just quick. Like he's just, he's a, that other demel, uh, other element of just being able to throw on the run and get away from, uh, just if there is, um, some serious breakage inside and the, the he would maybe have to take a second. He was not able to scamper on the outside. He's added that element where he's, he's quick, uh, getting outside and throwing on the run. He is. Sometimes he needs to trust his feet more. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's, uh, and, you know, it, it's too, it works both ways. Like sometimes he wants to move in the pocket and he doesn't really need to. So yeah. part of that's just experience and pass under pressure stuff that, you know, you, you just, without some experience, you just, you know, you just never, you're just not going to be good at it. And, and then other times, you know, he kind of needs to use his feet. He gets outside the pocket and he's got green grass, you know, he can run. So he needs to take off and use his feet every now and then. And, uh, you know, he'll throw it into traffic sometimes when he could have went and got a first down with his feet. So um, all that stuff comes with experience and, you know, he's getting it every day. And, uh, you know, we'll, you know, probably have a quarterback battle on our hands next year with him and uh, Blaine Stansbury, a current freshman. That'll be fun to see how it plays out. Um, when it comes to this Friday uh, against Powell on the road, Coach, um, with Aiden Green and Jordan Potts, what are you most excited about uh, doing with uh, your team to defend these guys? Um, you know, we've got, we've got to eliminate the explosive plays. Um, when you've got the weapons they do, they're going to have some. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't, elim- if you don't uh, neutralize some of that, you know, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, if... I mean, we don't need to get into a, you know, score fest with them, you know, mm-hmm. type of deal. Um, you know, Jordan Potts, you got to it's, – it's a fine line between getting pressure on him and, um, you know, and, 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 and overrunning your lanes, and then he has running lanes. And then he'll either scramble, keep his eyes downfield, throw it, or take off running, get a first down with his feet. So, um, you know, he presents that problem you know, to any, to any defense. So, and then when you got Aiden Green on the outside and, you know, they got a sophomore running back right now, Wheeler, mm-hmm. uh, he's not the biggest dude in the world, but man, he is quick and he's tough. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you can tell the big moment is, is not too big for him. So, um, you know, I really like his game a lot, honestly. He reminds me of some of the guys I've had in the past that were not the biggest, but really quick and tough like him. And, you know, they can they make life tough on you when, when you got a Jordan Potts who can throw it and scramble and then or you can hand it off to a kid like him that's tough and quick. Um, they have other weapons too outside. So, you know, you, you got to mix up your coverage a little bit and at least make them guess. The biggest tape here of this season has been who for you? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's been several, honestly, like, Somebody that, like, for the folks at Lincolnship Field that they're not seeing on, it's just not lighting up the stat sheet that he's just killing it um, when you're just doing film review. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, like, Brandon Hayward's stats this year have not been, you know, maybe what some people would think or want Mm -hmm. for a guy with his status. But, man, Brandon does so much other than 
catching balls. I mean, and that's what has been so good and refreshing about him. You know, you could see him, you know, a typical high school guy that's got stars by his name and college offers and stuff. And, you, you know, he's all about touchdowns and catching balls. But Brandon is different. He's just built different. He, you know, Brandon is one of the best blocking receivers I've ever had. Hmm. Um, you know, Brandon he gets out there on defense now and, and just kills it. And, you know, Friday night, he's the one that blocked the punt mm-hmm. or blocked the, uh, field goal, goal by, yeah. by McMahon County to seal the game for us. So Brandon does so much, whether it's in his leadership qualities of practice or, or whether it's on the field and maybe of making a block that, you know, the typical fans just following the ball doesn't see. So, you know, uh, I would say mm-hmm. even though he's a guy that's got a lot of accolades, um, he's still, you know, been a behind the scenes dude for us. Um, the biggest, or I guess I, I want to frame this this way. Most surprised you've been the Saturday, uh, after when you were reflecting on a game, what have you, which, uh, Saturday has been the most, uh, surprising for you when you're thinking about what happened on Friday night, you're like, man, that was not at all how I had anticipated that game going. It could be a win or a loss. Gosh, there's, there's probably been a few of those too, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the, on the good side, this past Friday night, you know, I yeah. never, I mean, who would have ever thought that that game with McMahon would come down to that, you know, and we've, you know, we had, uh, we've played so poorly on offense the first half and defense kept us in it. And then the second half offense really came on and had a lot of production. And um, we ended up, you know, only scoring the 13, but it's not indicative of how hard and how well we actually played in the second half. Um, uh, you know, my men held the ball forever. You know, they were milking the clock the whole time, you know, and trying to play their style of game and for it to come down the way it did and us have the ball inside the one yard line and then have a center quarterback exchange issue. And, you know, it was a prelude the, to the Bills Vikings on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> give them the ball to one and they kept in their two minute drill getting it out of bounds on, and then penalties on us or whatever. And it come down to that kick and Brandon blocking it or whatever. That's probably probably be one but on the you know on the negative side you know we you know like Greenville I mean that I don't know if I've ever been a part of a a first half like that bad like we Mm. literally you know whether it's muffin punts or fumbling or whatever I mean it was just amazing how we just kept self imploding um you know they're a good football team and but man I, I would be you know, I, I was. I'm still shocked at how, how bad that first half was, and how mm-hmm. we just couldn't even function. So, you know, this sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Yeah, but those are probably the two most shocking. Well, coach, we'll end on this. Uh, you got uh, Powell on Friday night. What uh, can the good folks in East Tennessee uh, checking this out today and tomorrow? How do they support the program? How do they uh, support Oak Ridge? And uh, what's coming up down the pike here? Well, I think, first of all, I think it's going to be a great game. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do. I mean, the first time we played them, we had, I don't know, I think it was like 415 yards of offense, and we just couldn't we just couldn't put it in the end zone and score. But, um, you know, in, in defense, they hit us with some big plays. But other than that, we did a, we did a good job barring about four plays or so. So I think, uh, we're, you know, we're probably a little better football team than we were then, and I know they've kept improving on defense 
every week since then too. So, uh, man, I, I, I anticipate it probably being a really, really good high school football game. So, you know, I would just encourage all in Wildcats to get there. It's going to be cold. Yep. But hey, just dress warm and don't be a wimp. Let's go. There you go. Uh, what's your? Or are you are you going beanie, double beanie? Like, uh, are you going Bill Belichick trench coat with the hoodie over the? Hey, what are we doing? No, I won't be pulling that one off. But I'll 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 probably just be in a sweatshirt and a beanie. Okay, I like it. Uh, Coach Cummings, thank you as always for the time. I greatly appreciate it, and uh, I will talk to you soon. All right, thank you. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves, and I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. Goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.